I feel like it's a very different climate where you are. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm in Vegas, too. So it's even different than like the rest of the US, you know, like, yeah, I'm from like Baltimore originally, uh, way there on like the East Coast of the US. And it's like, my parents, like I'll talk to my parents are still there. And it's like, you know, it's like snowing, it's about to be like snow weather and shit there. But yeah, it look, it looks warm. Is it warm? Uh, is, it, is it warm in Vegas all, all year round? Um, Yes and no. Compared to like England, yes, it's warm. Mm. Um, but in the wintertime, it does drop to like 50, 60 throughout the day. Right. But I don't that's... I don't know what that is. Oh, shit. We have different temperatures. Oh, right. So that's like, I guess the, um, the base rule is like subtract 32 or something. I think it's like, so it would be is like it when it's zero to us, it's like almost 30 to you. I think. Yeah. Zero is to you right? is like freezing temperature and us it's 32. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, yeah. It's it's inaccurate, but it's just add or minus thirty two gives you like a general thing. But yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> the fucking we use metric we don't use the metric system either, so you know. It's... Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy 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 bored. Yeah, so where you are, it's like probably like what, like 28 or something, an hour temperature. It, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. pretty warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty warm. Like you could go outside without a jacket. It's like a little chilly, but yeah, it's nice. It's like, yeah, you only get this in like the Southwest really, or the South, I guess, stays pretty warm in the US year round, but Sounds yeah. really nice. And I saw you, you were tweeting about All Saints Day and shit. So you were uh, mm. a, a lost Catholic out there in England or yeah yeah in the in the very anti-catholic country that is england i was just saying I, I didn't know that and then i just I not to be all parasocial and shit but when i saw you tweeting it i was like huh a catholic in england i guess it makes mm. sense right like but well like there's a lot there's lots of catholics in england but my mine is from my scottish side of my family so my family is scottish roman catholics i feel like you know there's a protestant thing in scotland too there's Catholics and Protestants, but I feel like it's e- easier to be a Catholic in Scotland, actually. Right. Because, especially here in Brighton, like, there wasn't even any masses that were on. There wasn't even any normal masses, never mind, like, particular ones for this occasion. And there's not any Catholic churches in my area. Yeah. So the further south you go in England, the less people, the more anti-Catholic people become. Yeah, I grew up in a very Catholic part of the country here in the u.s like baltimore is incredibly and i didn't know that till i moved really? away from it like it's very much dominated by catholics went to catholic schools and all that kind of shit and yeah so you're not are you not a catholic i take it you're not uh, a catholic well i'm confirmed in the church for sure but i i could call myself atheist now but like yeah i know a lot about catholicism because because <laughs> i was raised oh, in it so you were, oh so you were raised as a catholic so yes. you are a catholic then yeah yeah i'm confirmed catholic technically right, right. non you know non-practicing or whatever yeah yeah mm. yeah, yeah, yeah interesting so you're 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 more Catholic than I am because I didn't go to Catholic school and I haven't been confirmed or anything. Really, I was only baptized, but yeah, 
but I do believe in it, so therefore I try to go along with it. Right. But I'm go I'm going to the most anti Catholic event of all time on Sunday. I'm going to this thing called Lewis Bonfire Night. Have you heard of it? No, 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 no. So like on the fifth of November in the UK, it's like Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night, where you celebrate like the death of Guy Fawkes. Um, you know, committed treason against like Parliament, and you basically you like everyone just has like a bonfire and fireworks and stuff. And I'm going to like the oldest, most insane one because I've got a visitor staying with me from America, and I want to take him to that because it's even even as an English person, you're like this event is mental. There's like people they have like different clans within this little village of Lewis, and they plan for it all year round. And each clan has its own little uniform. They wear like little striped uniforms, um, or like just different uniforms. And they have tiki torches, right. and they on the night of bonfire night, and they go around with them. And there's all these different things that happen. And they have like a huge effigy of the Pope, and they burn it. <laughs> and last time I went, um, they had a huge effig- effigy of Donald Trump as well, and they burn that. <laughs> and there's like a huge parade that goes through the, the streets of this tiny little village called Lewis. And it's like the biggest event that they have of the year. It's a massive thing. And they, awesome. they just prepare for it all the rest of the time. But it's quite scary. Like when you've got all of these like Puritan feeling people like coming at you with tiki torches and you're someone like me, it really gave me flashbacks to just like probably the way that Hester Prynne would feel in that situation. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's actually perfect. Yeah, going. And you're hearing the voice listeners of Melly, our guest today for uh, yes. <laughs> the Heavy Board podcast. Uh, and she's here to talk about Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Uh, those of you probably have heard of this. It is one of it is probably one of the most famous books ever written, uh, at least in the American side of things. But, Melly, I want to start with basically introducing you to um, the listeners here. So we have the host of with the Now Then podcast. And uh, what 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 is your podcast about? Like, just kind of tell listeners what they would get with Melly and the Now Then podcast. <laughs> so I just talk about things concerning the UK and Europe generally, and it's usually just about like a book or a film or a cultural event or something connected to Europe and the UK. Um, it's kind of difficult though to stay within that formula because sometimes there's things that I really want to talk about with like American mutuals on Twitter and then I'm like oh this just doesn't fit my (laughs) very nationalist narrow little thing that I've like created so I'm probably just gonna like you know go out a bit more from that but generally it's supposed to be sort of like a cultural podcast yeah that's more that's more focused on the part of the world that I'm in rather than just America which is what most media yeah. <laughs> is centered on let's say the dominance of american culture throughout the world yeah the uh yeah the, the colonization of culture uh. <laughs> and i love i love american culture but you can only really talk about something that you know about yourself and i'm not american so therefore my only choice is to oh my god do you know what i feel like it's happened reading this book which is good which is really good but it'll take me a while to get out of it it's like because i'm so feeble-minded i'm like <laughs> Do you know, because the book is written in Old English, um, 
Nathaniel Hawthorne has written it in that old English style where he said, do you like when I sent you the message being like, can we do seven instead? Something hath come up which demandeth right. my attention. Like, I'm thinking in that. Yeah. Did did it make did it make you feel like that? It always or am does. I just yeah. minded? It always does with the how um uh doth doth you wished to uh like they just add the th <laughs> to everything uh yeah and saying yeah. like the thou and the right yeah 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 and I guess that's the British influence now just I just yeah but uh yeah it, it is <laughs> I've heard that too like I guess I I haven't looked into it a whole lot but like with the accents and things like that where like where they had like the first colonies come to the like, kind of basically east coast of the u.s where like there's like regions even where i'm from like the kind of more isolated regions like in the chesapeake bay there's a bunch of islands it's known as tangiers island and it's like just like a fishing village very small you know like 300 people living there and they've just been isolated from the rest of the country for that long and they still have Whoa. a very thick kind of accent that's it's not british but it's like oh it's like leftover from like 1600s do they have like a transatlantic accent yeah and it like leans more british but it's not quite like the british accent of today and like it's strange yeah (laughs) i'd love love to hear that tangiers island yeah yeah it's like it's it's like the mid-atlantic accent but like a little bit more british uh what would they would they call it Hockney over there or Cockney over there? In oh England? yeah, Cockney, yeah. yeah. A little Cockney yeah. type inflections mm. and things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Then... Some of my um, some of my cousins like like one of my second cousins does this kind of as a joke. Like I've not spoken to him for years, but he, I've heard him say like say like thee and thou like just in general speech, and that's kind of like quite a northern thing to do. And they say that like northern Eng- like northern accent in English, like English, is closer to sort of Shakespearean English than the southern English is, which I like to believe. <laughs> I don't know where I don't know where I don't know where it's true or not, but like northerners in like a jokey way do use those old phrases sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I, remember, I always talk to a mutual of ours. Uh, the, shout out to the nanny state. Where we, whenever something comes up between accents <laughs> or like UK versus US or something, that like we always get into the DMs. Just be like, what, what, what's going on? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, Brits love to talk about like classism and <laughs> dif- differences between like the North South divide. You know, we love we love that shit. Well, the Americans do love to romanticize England and in all of Europe, really, like European accents and then British accents as we. We do treat it as, uh, I think, as yeah, as our mutual nanny state said in that time, uh, as as a qualification, as as if you have like a PhD God. or something. <laughs> oh my! That's how God. Americans treat that accent. I'm about but, yeah. to gravely disappoint you, Andrew. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Yeah, but yeah. So you hear that, listeners? Uh, Melly's out there on the Now and Then podcast. Get out there! It's going to be linked in the description of this episode, as always. Uh, get there, sign up for it, give it a listen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what I usually start off with is I just what versions we read, because this is kind of a dorky podcast in terms of the book nerds that want to know which edition, which blah, blah, blah. So, oh, wow, really? Let me see what mine is. <laughs> this book sure. was originally published in 1850 to much controversy. It's uh, Here in the U.S., at least, it's known as one of the most banned books ever. Just because when it right. came out at that time, like it was just, you know, I guess the infidelity, I guess the fact that it, de- you know, demeaned clergy in some ways too, showing that clergy are, you know, human and make the same type of errors as everybody else. And I guess it just offended people or I don't know what it was, but apparently 
it got banned a lot because of it um like in 1850 when it came out you mean oh yeah 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 oh that's so that's so understandable to me but when you messaged me recently did you say that um there'd been some scandal recently or something has it been banned from schools recently for like a different reason probably a woke reason or something uh nowadays it is removed from curriculum because it's considered quote unquote too hard like too difficult for like you know 13 year olds to read or something uh and Mm. then there is some more woke yeah but those are always ridiculous like the people that are i don't really know what the woke what the woke reading of this would be to be honest yeah i would say maybe something of some feminist so maybe something about like hester not having as much agency although you have to stretch oh i would have said she's like a pro-feminist right exactly completely that's what i would say too yeah uh but you know there's always i mean shit i know and this contaminates the entire discourse all over the world whatever a fucking rural school board in like tennessee or florida is infecting like the international news now like you know like they're like oh my god they're banning (laughs) shit in like florida or something and and it affects everything but yeah originally out in 1850 I have the Signet Classics printing, which was originally published in 1959, but the version I have, listeners, was published in 2009 with the introductions and all that good okay. stuff. So mine's like uh, Penguin English Library. Is Classic. That... Okay. So Penguin English Library, let's see. It's just got the address of the Penguin Group. Um, hang on. It doesn't really say. It yeah. just Oh, okay. Okay, it does. First published in the United States of America by Ticknor Reed and Fields, 1850. Published in Penguin Classics, edited by Nina Bayham, 1986. This edition first published in the Penguin English Library, 2012. Nice, nice. (laughs) And you can get both of those editions. We'll link them, listeners, in the description. And like really whatever copy of book you get of this like there are cheaper ones you buy they're used ones all over the fucking world probably in bookstores in multiple languages go get yourself a copy listeners will link it can i have a look at your cover yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh lovely uh, with the pilgrims like the puritans right off in there like yeah, yeah. i love that they're so different that the, the editions of our books look so different yeah to each other and Signet is known for like the cheap, 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 like $5 copies or less of like paperbacks. Right. They're usually only classics, like books that are, you know, in the public domain, like 100 years old, more than that, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're always good, cheap little copies. And this is one you want to have on your shelf, listeners. Um, but I always like to start too, uh, Melly, what's your history with this book? Like, so how did you come to it ever? I don't... Sorry, yeah, go on. Yeah, I don't have any history with this book whatsoever. So I want to thank you for bringing me to this because basically I've just been working my notice at this hellish like corporate office job that I hate. <laughs> and then I've like had lo- I've had like loads of mad stuff going on like personally. I've been really busy. So I just wouldn't have been reading a book at the moment at all if it wasn't for you roping me into this. And I was like, oh God, can I even remember how to read? Like... <laughs> um, I, I hadn't read for ages and yeah this has like forced me to read this classic book and I absolutely loved it so thanks so much for getting me to do this and um, yeah it's like the perfect autumnal book like I can't think of anything more perfect to read for this moment because it's just such like an autumnal book in every way isn't it and then also 
you know, it's just been Halloween and then All Saints Day and then All Souls Day today. And then just the Puritan aspect of this whole thing. I just I just can't think of a more perfect like time to have read it. Uh, absolutely absolutely look at that endorsement listener absolutely so that's just me making up for the fact that i've got no history with this book whatsoever so that's just you know i'm just going from this point onwards and i've discovered something new that is a very important piece of american literature which also links to britain so yeah that's what's it feels so like a combination yeah. of our cultures in the, in the literary history, it's strip, it's it's all linked because I guess maybe because maybe just like we speak the same language with different accents or whatever that we just link I mean, British and American. Do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that like we we link at least I'm studying this as long as I have in like college settings and shit. Like you know they call it British literature, like they separate it out. We have American and British literature, but then like when we talk about like the larger Western canon, it usually includes both. You know because of the not just because the countries are so intertwined with the history, but because of the language probably. But yeah, I mean, so I take it this was not required reading in like uh, English high schools and things like that. No, I'm embarrassed to say that I've never even come across it. Like I didn't know what it was. And just like the American people that I know here in the UK, <laughs> they were like, oh my God. Like their, the responses of American people that I know were like guiltily being like, oh, I feel like I should have read that because it's a really important piece of American literature, but I've never read it. And I was just like, oh, I was none the wiser to it until now. Um, what about you? What did, can I ask you? What yeah, is your yeah. history of the book? Yeah, mine is actually the same where I was, uh, I actually don't think I was ever assigned it, like officially assigned it in high school, but it was constantly talked about. It's one of those books that's so old and so famous. It's just a part of culture like people will just make references to it and things like that like it'll just be referenced in conversation they'll just talk i about think that's it. a particularly yeah. american thing because that's not my experience of it at all <laughs> right yeah so my bias is definitely towards american <laughs> american interpretation <laughs> but i'd never read it either i'd never read the whole thing i knew the gist i knew like the scarlet letter like the actual like what the story was just because it's so ingrained and everything almost biblical if I, if I dare go that far in terms of just how prevalent the stories and like things are and I guess there's a lot of reference to to bible verses and things like that in this text and a lot of classic texts but yeah my experience is uh not completely devoid of it because like I'd heard of it it's always constantly brought up particularly now like in the last eight years of our culture in terms of making people cultural pariahs or you know like like just shoving them into a corner labeling them with something and everybody gawks mm. you know it just it is rather poignant and people always bring it up um i guess just because throughout history particularly i mean this is every country and then just american history there's always been periods where it's like the this is about the puritans listeners but you know the red scare in the 50s was just people would quote this book because it was similar where they're just labeling you you know a witch or an adulterer in this yeah. case and then all of the rest of the culture just treats you as some type of contamination but yeah no history with it other than just yeah i know i'm supposed to read it <laughs> i know i was supposed right, to do right right so you're this. like the yeah. americans that i know where they were like guilty like oh i should have read it but um yeah i think yeah, it seems like it's been very instructive in your culture because people refer to it all the time. Maybe people were referring to it here and I just didn't notice because I didn't know what they meant. But I think we probably have that just more about like our, you know, our pieces of literature instead, which is very interesting because something that you've had referred, like something that you have seen referred to a lot 
I have very innocently come to this for the first time and that's been great as well because like there's been so there's so many sort of very sordid twists and turns in this book and they've caught me every time because I didn't even really have an awareness of the story so like I can often you know sometimes you can guess what's going to happen next in a book I often can and with this it's like as soon as one of the new revelations comes out in it you're like oh damn it how didn't I just see that but you really don't don't you think you really don't see it until like the last second did you did you have that experience or because you already heard about it did you kind of already know what was going to happen uh I didn't know all the details but I was shocked considering how this is written and we talked we mentioned it a little bit but like the language that's used it's complex it's older it's it, it it'll if you're not used to it and you're just it can trip up a lot of readers, so I do understand people having issues with it. But it, it yeah, I mean, my, my next thing is always just kind of like, yeah, how did it kind of read for you? And I, I would say, same for me, like I, despite it being difficult, I was actually shocked at how into it I was, like kind of like not pulse-pounding thriller or anything like that, listener, but just kind mm. of is that first scene where you get her just kind of, yeah, walking out of the prison and she's holding that infant and then everybody's gathered around it's like what a great way to start this and you're just at that point i just i think my first sitting with this i read it in a couple sittings i just rocked out like 120 pages just because i was so kind of hooked on the on the you know like story and i I was kind of shocked that i was that hooked on such an older book because you know my experience with old texts like this and even older texts that we've we've done on this podcast are just you know, it takes a while. Like, I'm like, oh, if I have to read mm. this, I'm like, okay, I need it like two, three, maybe four weeks to read some of these old books just because it's going to take a while to process all that. And the sentences mm. are very complex and shit like that. But this one, I was like surprised how well I went through it. But <clears throat> how did it read yeah, for so you? you yeah. You've, yeah, you probably had some good training in that you've read <laughs> like even older books recently because, yeah, I, I also thought it was a really great way to start the book. But I was a bit getting... You know, I was trying to understand the meanings of some of the sentences, and I was it was I was it was like a bit slow progress. But then, what kind of happened was the more I got used to that flow of prose and the meanings of some of the words, I ended up just like fully understanding it and like getting through it really quickly towards the end. Like it gets easier as you go on, doesn't it? Because you start understanding. Because not only is it like different words and terms of phrases and the way that the sentences are written but it's also like you've got to understand the mindset of people in that time and because and, sometimes you'll understand the sentence but then you won't understand the mindset of the of the people and like how puritanically they see things um but then you kind of become one of them by the end of it which i very much enjoyed yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like, it, it is one of the people use this phrase a lot in literature circles and shit. Where they say, oh, it teaches you how to read it. It kind of does. Like, it kind of does kind of, like, yeah. teach you how to. And I guess just his style and all the writers at that time, if you read, like, any of the big writers, even the big British writers or Russian writers, all the people in the 1800s writing great novels were, like, you know, long, lofty sentences that have multiple parts and you have to really keep up with them as they shift and add and add and add and then go back to where it started, you know, like four four lines up and then you're like, you know, it, it does get overwhelming, yeah. So I was worried about that, but then like you said, I was kind of surprised at how quickly I, yeah, started running through it with uh, 
Yeah, and, and as I said, by by the end of it, I was messaging you in old English, you know, yeah. and saying <laughs> I I run it slightly late, um, but yeah, it's very addictive that old English turn of phrase once you once you get used to it. I had a an undergrad, and I don't recommend teachers do this, but I had a professor in undergrad during it was a British lit course. Go figure. And they were making <laughs> us read. He made us read Beowulf in the original, like old, old English. So oh, I've never read that. It's more German than it is English. Like, they're, like you right. can't even recognize the word the, or you know, like it's oh, not actually, even. Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen a bit of it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think someone screenshotted some bit to like show to me how difficult it is. Because I think I was bragging, like, oh yeah, because I'm English. I bet I'd be able to understand it. <laughs> more easily than an American person and then I looked at it and was like no actually no way yeah yeah and it is being like 19 and read trying to read old English like it, it was basically gibberish so you get nothing out of it it would have been better if we got a translation or if you really wanted us to see the old English have it like on one page the old English on the other page the translation so we could actually understand what's happening but you should be able to get like old English on Duolingo that's like the right. next step because you can you can learn like Welsh or like you can learn Scots Gaelic and other useless languages so they may as well bring out old English so that you can actually read some of these very old books. Do you uh, do you have any Gaelic in your family? Speakers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, not. Mm, I just thought you meant like generally people. Well, um, both. Yeah, probably yeah. very far back. Mm, not really. I feel like my family are very like anglicized they'd hate me to say that but yeah they don't speak Gaelic. <laughs> i've heard old ladies speak gaelic though in scotland and it was sound cool my mother on my no, mother's side speak it. my mother's from her mother is from ireland um oh. not i don't think she was first gen for me but like back in like you know late 1800s or whenever the family mm. came over my grandmother was born in you know the 1920s over there over here but uh she was saying her grandfather spoke Gaelic like he would speak it and my mother would tell me these stories of like oh sorry my mother's grandfather would speak it so uh whenever they were like family dinners or something he'd just go off like at the table like in a language nobody else in like the oh whole house God. spoke and stuff because he was still kind of right off the boat <laughs> you know and uh yeah so oh it was God. always interesting to me like who I mean it's completely dead here and I know it's mostly dead over there too right like oh yeah it's literally yeah. just like i think it's just like some people maybe a couple within ireland and then just some old ladies talking <laughs> it. I don't, it's not like a big thing right, right although actually when i was in donegal for like a month staying with my auntie and uncle one summer when i was a teenager i just got sent over to donegal with my auntie and uncle um i was watching some irish tv and there was there was Gaelic channels then, and that was in like the late nineties, I think, two thousands. So maybe there still is. That's yeah, that's. I mean, I guess they, they, I guess they teach Latin and stuff still. Like even over here in schools, they mm. like if you're in like the AP, what they call advanced placement courses here and shit, like the pre college courses in high school, they like you have to take it a lot of times. Take Latin. To did just, you learn Latin? Fuck no, 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 fuck <laughs> no, fuck no. Uh, I am trying to learn if I, I do try to do daily language exercises. I'm nowhere close to fluent or anything like that in any of them. But yeah, I do try to uh, keep up my chops, especially being somebody who has studied this for a living essentially was like, I just feel like I have to, like I like I, I need to. And like, if I, especially when you're reading old texts like this or even just, you know, 20th century texts, a lot of modernist texts. Well, what what are you doing? 
Well, what like, do do? what I do, usually I'll do Duolingo. I have, uh, right now, I'll do Spanish, French, Italian, and German. And I'll usually just do a few lessons in the morning and then just kind of, you know, I'm nowhere close to being able to just hold a conversation or anything with, or even read a book. But I would like to eventually be able to read some of these texts like Proust in the original French or something or read. Um, I always said my, my, my dad tells stories, too, where he said his grandmother spoke German when they came over to the U.S. here in like Baltimore area. But then like nobody else did. So it all died, you know, well, within right. a generation. Yeah. And that was the That's thing people were doing at the time, like especially during World War Two, World War One, like the people, the German immigrants did not want to make it known that they could, mm. that they were German and spoke German and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So they didn't have their kids do it. And then it gets lost pretty quickly. But so maybe trying yeah, to revive imagine. that. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool. But yeah, we got uh, a little bit. But yeah, this this book fucking. I mean, it's so ripe with themes, like it's so ripe with themes. And I was just thinking like, okay, I don't even know how to approach it with how many things we could talk about. Like I was thinking, all right, just off the top of my head, reading this guilt, uh, mob justice or crowd justice, uh, motherhood slash womanhood or even that martyrdom. Um, yeah, you could do a feminist angle. You could do, I mean, there's just so many themes in this fucking book, but I wanted to hit on, um, I guess a good place to start is just Hester's beauty. Like the theme of like, it's constantly referenced how beautiful she is and like how she is forced to hide it under this gray cloak and cap and then have this kind of scarlet Mm. letter. But I say, what did you think about that? Like kind of beauty and uh, Hester and how it's used, et cetera. Yeah. I thought Hester was fascinating and I thought she is the most virtuous person in the whole book. Uh, in the whole story and it's precisely because she thinks that she isn't and I think that is part of why she's beautiful actually um I think she is like a completely well no one's a completely good person but I think she is a a a good a person as you can hope to be and yeah she's very beautiful and she's also just very like bright and talented if you're hearing this it's because you are listening to the free public feed of heavy board to get complete uncensored uninterrupted full access to this podcast become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board that's right heavy board is made possible by subscribers like you for less than one cup of coffee per month you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes jerk shop heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. Like, the whole thing with her being good at needlework and embroidery. Because, you know, at first, so when she comes out of the prison with Baby Pearl and she has to walk through the sort of, like what feels just like medieval peasants like, <laughs> staring at her and like shouting stuff. And then they make her go and stand on the, what's it called? Like the pillory or something. The, they make her go on and stand on this stand to be looked at for hours as her punishment. And she's obviously wearing the scarlet letter. Um, like after that, when she sort of is just left to go into the town after she comes out of prison I was thinking how is she going to survive like what is she going to do she's not got a husband she's not getting any money 
but she obviously supports her and Pearl by being a, like an amazing dressmaker and seamstress and embroiderer. So I feel like that's part of her beauty too. She just she turns her hand to beautiful things. Like she's beautiful. She creates these beautiful things. Pearl is so beautiful. Um, and yeah, and I also I googled Hester Prynne and. It showed me Demi Moore dressed as Hester Prince. So I think there was a film. Did you see it? Have I didn't see the film. film. No, I didn't. But I, I think, yeah, there's probably a couple, I'd imagine. But yeah, it looks like yeah. the most famous one is Demi Moore playing Hester Prince, which is kind of perfect because, right. you know, like pale with dark hair and she looks kind of what you would maybe imagine Hester Prince to look like. Absolutely. And I was thinking, I didn't think about that either, but yeah, that she creates beauty. And then you consider even, yeah, creating Pearl or creating these garments or like like you could even extend it I think even further where like she creates a little bit of beauty in the community too and then not just like the physical yeah. or, or beauty that you look at and stuff but like maybe emotional or spiritual beauty like in some way like she she kind of yeah. helps bring that into the the what is in the story listeners I think it's supposed to be like early settlements of Boston so it's called Boston but this is like 1600s where it's basically not even a city it's like a settlement like a village at this point yeah so it's is it in Salem is that Massachusetts it's uh not Salem but uh close to Salem Salem Massachusetts oh is the, because um... actually yeah when in the introduction bit where Nathaniel Hawthorne is talking about that custom house place where he was, I guess he was working when he found this scholar, that's in Salem, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I guess this, so this is, is Boston near to that? Yeah, it's pretty close. Uh, I'm not actually sure how far away it is from, but Boston would be like the major city in Massachusetts there on the East coast. And then it would be like Salem was one of the settlements. I, I guess it's still relatively I mean, it's nowhere near the size of Boston, I think, but I don't know. Maybe listeners let us know if you know. But yeah, it's Salem's famous for the witch trials where they had the, the kind of Puritans did the same thing as this that they would do to Hester, but they would even worse. They would just hang you, you know, if you were accused of being a witch or they would drown you or whatever it was. And, you know, no justice. They called it justice. There were trials, but not really. You know, they were they were kangaroo courts and everybody just, you know, women were just getting killed for it. You know, yeah, because Mrs. Gibbons or whatever she's called, like the sister of the governor, yeah. who's clearly like a scary witch in in this book, or is put across as a scary witch. <laughs> she she ends up. It sounds like she gets tried as a witch. Yeah. After not in this book, but like after this book, I wonder. This is probably something I should know, but like the place where the witch trials happened in the UK is kind of like the same area of the country that i'm from it's like it's it's in lancashire which is close to where i'm from and there's a bus that you can get on from manchester city center called the witch way and it takes you all the way to where the witch trials were um which one was was it did it happen first over here i guess they probably did I'm... it first here and then they went over there to the puritan settlements and then took that with them maybe i don't know yeah because it happened there's... in both places there's, I mean, there's, it took the whole world by storm. And I guess it was like a medieval holdover too. Cause I think like some of the first books printed once the printing press was invented um, were like, they weren't like, oh, people would think, oh, it's the Bible or, oh, it's like some educational stuff. But it was most of the books that were printed were like how to spot a witch, like how to, you know, like kind <laughs> of like medieval, like if she cursed, like, so, you know, really kind of weird things too that, you know, are, we would look at today as crazy, but I, and I guess oh, yeah, that was I've just pastoring. Yeah. yeah, I've got this book called Old Lancashire Tales, and it's it's 
put together all the stories from those times in my area about like um, witches and different supposedly supernatural happenings and different punishments people would get for crimes. Um, it's to be fair, it's not that great actually. Like it's a bit, it's not written that well. But it's still it's still quite interesting. It's got some interesting illustrations, but they're just all put together from a past time by this guy who found them all. It's and it's absurd. I mean, it's crazy to look back now and see it. I, in America, they're obsessed with you know Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which is basically a play about the Salem witch trials <clears throat> and like how it happened. You know, the people that were accused, blah blah. blah and that's a very famous one that they've made a bunch of movies of and stuff. But yeah, I, I, maybe it's just that the fact that, you, like you said, like the American cultural dominance, it just overshadows the original, uh, you know, like English and European <laughs> witch trials or whatever that were going on for like hundreds of years before the colonies. But I don't know. I don't know whether it was on. I don't know what the time period was. But like, I feel like when I was a kid and I heard about the witch trials, it was really unimaginable. Right. But but like the way things are now, I feel like it's actually quite easy to imagine. It was incredibly radical like for me like the last i mean it's the last eight years but for me it really ramped up like the last three or four where i was just mm. looking around being like oh this is how it all happens like this is you know before, yeah it's yeah, always unimaginable same. and then you look around like why is this person saying this and then they're like oh that's COVID, how it happens yeah yeah, yeah yeah the woke stuff before but then it was accelerated by covid definitely and the fact that it was global like the fact that it was a like a globally panic it was like everybody was panicking and 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 they started just yeah making witch accusations at least the modern equivalent and i was just like holy shit like this is how it all happened this is how the germans took over like you know it was like the, the plague yeah. it was like the, the black death right. all over again but without the sort of bubbling sores on your skin and the really disgusting deaths <laughs> but it was all just psychological instead yeah yeah and I think that's another reason that I, I this book is always brought up now, too, because it, it is timeless in that way, because what I mean, it's very human to like accuse people of being witches, especially when you're scared or superstitious. But like, you know, the reason this has, has stand, stood the test of time, I think, is because it does show us exactly what happens is that it's always never as clear as it seems. It's always misguided. You know, the mob justice is never actually justice. It's more vengeance than anything else, you know punishment more than anything else and and mm. yeah i think it is scary like i've i had never i'm glad you brought it up because i have never been like as afraid that this might happen like until yeah recently like yeah we're just how quick it can happen like somebody can start a hashtag a fucking teenager can start a hashtag <laughs> and all of a sudden the the biggest governments in the world are implementing that hashtag as like it's just incredible to me I've, I've never seen anything like it before and all it takes is in your personal relationships is for one person to accuse you of something and then your life's over because court of law doesn't mean anything anymore either so like on a global governmental level yes but also on like an interpersonal level it's crazy how much how easily your life can be ruined by like a tweet or someone saying one thing and then everyone just believing them did you uh, did you have anything like that happen over the last? No, but I just like You've seen it. Yeah. Just just because I'm like a bit of a gobshite who can't not say what I think. <laughs> I just like during COVID, it was just difficult because I could just see I could just see really plainly from the start that like the vaccine was bullshit. 
the all of the way that everything like the whole world just changed within like a day right i could just like see through it all and like it's frustrating i've said this before on like my podcast but like it's frustrating because at the time you'd be met by this tense silence like even by the people closest to you so you feel very alienated and now when i'm talking about this of course all my friends and family are like no we were on your side the whole time we also thought that but it's Mm -hmm. like no you no you didn't Mm -hmm. or if you did you didn't have the guts to like come out and say it and i think it caused like terrible damage and i think we're only just do you know like in the way where like if a business like like that we work is going bankrupt at the moment and that's from the results of covid basically getting into debt i feel like the psychological impacts are the same that it takes a while for them to be fully shown in us the impacts of that time and absolutely. we're all feeling it now which is why everyone's so crazy absolutely i mean yeah i didn't have anything like you know hester print or anything like i didn't have anything like that happen but like i remember the <laughs> same thing like in 2020 it was starting and I was right from the beginning, like, everybody's acting ridiculous. Like, this is absurd. Well, why is everybody doing this? And it led to group chat blowups, like group chats that I had been in, you know, just with friends for like years or whatever. And like, I don't know if they just cut me out or whatever, but this group chat just stopped having people participate in it or whatever after. Uh, <laughs> after oh, yeah. so you think that they like sneaked off to another group chat? Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, and like I said, it wasn't even, I mean, I guess it became political very quickly, but at that time, it still wasn't quite political. It was just people being scared, I think, and then not knowing what to do, and then you had all these idiots mm. on TV every day saying all this bullshit, and then people were getting... So, you know, I try not to blame them, I guess. <laughs> or I try yeah, to Yeah, because I have a lot of sympathy yeah. towards that, because I was scared, too, at first. Right. And, like, I mean, I could... To be fair, when COVID first hit... Like I wore a mask and like I believed I believed initially it was a real virus, but it was when it got political that I I mean that I could see through it because like just before I bought a mask I remember I was like looking for one on the internet and I asked someone or like asked Google as well I was like oh like what do you need the mask to be like for it to actually protect you and the overall consensus was it just needs to be cloth and I was like what so right. what so the you're saying that I just put a piece of cloth over my face and it doesn't have to have anything particular right. on it to like protect me in any way. And that was when I was like, wait a minute. And then when the mask thing became really politicized, I was like, this is ridiculous. It's just a piece of cloth. It's like wearing a pair of knickers over your face. Like, right. what is it? It's obviously not doing anything. Yeah. 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 Oh, how soon we forget. Like, and that turned into a Hester Preen situation very quickly with the scarlet letter. Like, you, the mask was the scarlet letter, right? Oh. Yeah. If you weren't wearing oh, the scarlet not, letter. Not, oh, not wear, yeah, not wearing yeah. the mask. <laughs> it became that that absolute, absolute. Oh God, that was insane. Yeah, but I think it, it's 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 important to bring up, listeners, because it is this kind of, um, just I think just how much you know this book still resonates because this is just capturing touching something that's incredibly human but also like you know never goes away no matter how advanced we get or how much we like to think of ourselves as beyond that or like enlightened enough to not make those mistakes again well we make them all the time <laughs> it happens all yeah because the time. it can come yeah. out in many different forms because there's obviously the woke mob and then there's the whole covid thing but then there's the other side of it which like on twitter you know how it is on there 
everyone has got really extreme opinions. So then <laughs> yeah. when I I'd said some like opinion about like abortion, that was like a really neutral and like not a big deal type of opinion. And all of these tradcasts like absolutely pounced on me. And they reminded me of like the Puritans. Like they really did. Yeah. So p- people have been Puritans from all angles in all different types of ways. Like the incels are Puritans right. about like female sexuality. Like the religious people are the most obvious Puritans. They're like the, the like the actual ones. And then the woke people are like that. Like everyone's doing that. Like everyone's on a witch hunt, but for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and yeah, it just compare. It just overlays everything so well. I have this section that I want to read, and then I want to ask about this. Um, about the morality angle to it, about this being kind of like a, a not a, almost a fable in some regards, not a fairy tale, but almost a fable where it's teaching you these kind of life lessons and certain what they call at least, you know, in the field of study of literature. But on page 46 in my version is really kind of the last sentence that ends the first chapter where it's uh, Hawthorne writes, it may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. And this is just kind of about the rose bush that's outside the prison guard, and he's talking, I mean, outside the prison door, and there has he really dedicates a lot of space to talking about this rose bush and how it symbolizes this beauty and hope despite what's happening. And I wanted to ask you basically, like, would you call this a morality story or like a fable in that way? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, um, but I feel like it's so. Did you ever read that Aesop's Aesop's Tales is Aesop's Fables when you were a kid? Did you did you uh, ever have that read to you, or did you ever read it? I'm familiar with some of them, but I've never actually like read. You know, because the, the they're quite like moralizing and quite right. straight down the line. Whereas with this, it's this more like gentle gentle paternal thing of trying to express how like we're all bad like we're all sinners equally which i like um but yeah i don't know it's difficult because like if it was banned at the time obviously it wasn't seen to be a fable or it wasn't seen to be moralizing what do you think about that yeah i would if if pressed i would say the same as you i'd say yes yes if easy answer is yes it's this definitely trying to show us some type of morality or just like you know keep us from making these mistakes or showing what what can happen if you go too far with the puritanism and the kind of witch hunting and and Mm -hmm. obsessing over who 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 is without sin right like this i mean shit the christian allegory is all over this story there's a bunch of scholarship about it but i mean just when you think about yeah like the the kind of the preachings of forgiveness and then the kind of the forgiveness that wasn't granted to Hester until so much later, you know, after all this suffering and really the forgiveness that was given to her was a little half ass, you know, like it was kind of like, like it was a little, she had to do a lot to get right, the forgiveness. Right. And people were, whereas kind of, the man of the story didn't have to do a lot. And then even after, I don't want to give spoilers. Yeah, I don't, we don't do care. This. Yeah. No spoilers. Nobody cares. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, the the minister hasn't had to do as much to work for forgiveness, it feels like, as Hester has. And I think that maybe just the morality in terms of like showing like the, the downside of cowardice, like the, how cowardly the minister was, uh, like how cowardly some of these people were and like, 
and how cowardice leads you to be almost vindictive in a way. Like it leads you yeah. to be jealous and bitter and, and angry. Like like cowardice is just as bad as like envy and like all the other kind of things. But yeah, I mean, it, I would say it's that's the obvious one, right? Like that's the obvious one. But I think he complicates. Yeah, because it's it. like yeah. when you're like a bit when you're acting like a sort of sniveling wretch, like the minister was, because he's really <laughs> right. scared to be exposed then you're not respecting yourself. Therefore you can't really respect other people and you act like a sniveling wretch in all of your interactions. Right. And just how like off putting it is like whenever I see somebody sniveling or like afraid and I, you know, I don't like to beat people up. I understand there's reasons to be afraid. There's reasons to be whatever, not irrational either to like put yourself out there in public and all. I understand that. But at the same time, when you're sniveling over it, we go, Oh no, no, I just, it's disgusting to me. I just look at you and I, it's like that scene in The Godfather. Like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? He just fucking grabs him. He's like, you can act like a man. Like, you can act like a man is what you can do. Like, stop crying. Like, stop sniveling in front of me like a bitch. Like, and there is like it a It really level. caught me by surprise as well. Like, so, yeah, so Hester goes out into the community and she lives in the town, but she lives out of the town in a little cottage by the sea- seashore, doesn't she? And she's just getting on with her life. She's making these garments and supporting her child. Um, and then basically, oh, what was I going to say? I was, leading, I was going somewhere with that and then I suddenly forgot. Um, oh, yeah, and, like, so it caught me by surprise that the minister is the one that she had the thing with. Did that did, did that catch you by surprise? Yes, yes, absolutely. It was like a hu- almost like thriller like reveal when I was reading it. Yeah, like but then it became it was then it, and you felt immediately like it should have been really obvious as soon as right. you find out. Right. I don't know how he did that. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah, for Hawthorne himself, listeners. Uh, there's a great little thing in my version where it gives you kind of a summary of his life and shit like that. And, you know, like most writers of the time, he was struggling to be successful, never really got it until basically this book. And, uh, yeah, just just he was admired fiercely by everybody else. Like I famously Melville dedicated Moby Dick to him like this, this every other writer at the time loved him. And I think it was because of things like that, like Melly was saying, like these kinds of how well it worked and how well he used the reveals and things like that to his advantage, to the story's advantage so that a reader can feel that surprise and all that stuff. And it, yeah, he's just a masterful yeah. writer, <clears throat> even if a little indulgent, but then you think about the times, like everybody was writing this way with these kind of long, long, long sentences. Um, <clears throat> he is very descriptive, isn't he? Oh, like yeah. um, that whole, you know, so the introduction the custom can you still see me by the way because mine's gone black it looks like you're mine's f- gone black you're frozen but um can you see me yeah i can see you but i can see that on mine it says dot 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 so i wondered if you but you can still hear me i can still hear you sometimes if you turn the camera off and then turn it back on if they make okay. you use that stupid little button in the center of the the app thing okay yeah, I didn't understand what that whole bit was about, like the custom house thing, because I couldn't work out. Um, so it was in, he was trying to get across the situation, the place he was working in when he found this letter with like this, this parcel with the scarlet letter in it before the story begins. But I feel like the introduction was so long. I feel like I'd read like a massive part of the book before I'd even got to the actual beginning of it. Um, 
but I didn't really understand what Custom House was because it seemed like a nautical port where it's old like sailors or navy officers or something like that. Then it also seemed to be about Republicans and Democrats, so it seemed right. about the government, which I really didn't understand. Yeah. Did you? I didn't quite understand it either, and I think my guess from what I, I don't know a lot about this, but what from my guess would be is that the customs house in the ports at that time were had a lot of authority um, because of all the imports and exports and stuff that were happening on those colonies. And I guess uh, they so the had, government might have also been based there. Is it being yeah? So and it, you you got a lot of tight. I guess you got at that time. Oh, I guess the time he was writing about it, the king wouldn't have been an issue in America. But I guess at the time of the Scarlet Letter, you know, whoever had the royal seal or was you know sent there by the king, then like, you know, it would have. I guess you just had ultimate authority or something. Like you, you had this extra right. authority in the town that other people didn't, and and I guess yeah. just like the history but yeah there's in my version they had that intro and then at the end they have like a little essay too that like I guess were both written by Hawthorne and they explained to me that the reason that they published all of the two essays sandwiching basically the Scarlet Letter novel is I guess because that's how it was originally published in like 1850 with like these right. two essays alongside of it um yeah, so I don't know but yeah I, I found the same way I was pretty bored like that first 40 pages of just that <laughs> that uh the custom house thing yeah. it felt like you had to learn about all these old guys for ages in like excruciating like all these old were they navy officers or something like old men who used to work out on the seas i guess in some form and then now they're just like old decrepit guys who yeah. just sit in this place all day like drinking port and like falling asleep and he just explained them in like excruciating excruciating detail just so at the end he could say that he went upstairs and opened a parcel and saw a scarlet letter like it just seemed a bit <laughs> a bit much yeah yeah it is i have this idea that i've been working on i don't usually have to talk public but there's just the way that the more i learn about like the history of the military particularly on the u.s side of things like before the 20th century it was just a bunch of scattered mess like they had an army and all that but we didn't have what we would call today where we have all the different units like the navy and the army and the air force like all the different units of the, uh, of the military it might have all been like one thing yeah and it was scattered like all over the place right. militias that would make sense yeah and then I think in the 20th century, like there were all these little scattered seaports and like sea security that acted like navies, but they weren't officially part of the navy. And then I guess like in the 20th century, they just like enveloped them all in to the navy and like redid it to make it more uniform right. and I guess a chain of command wise. But so it is hard to think back mm. on that too. Like I'm always like, wait a minute, that's how they fucking did this. Like, <laughs> all right, but. I did want to touch this little passage on basically this the description of how beautiful Hester is. Um, uh, page fifty one in my version. It's a little bit long. Oh, I'm gonna have a look. I'm gonna. Oh, actually, it probably won't be the same page number, will it? No. I want to read it while you did it. But, but it's chapter two, a couple paragraphs in. Um, chapter two. Is it Pearl? It's about. Um, is it the one about the chapter about Pearl? Oh no, that's chapter six. Sorry, I'm way yeah. way ahead. The Marketplace, Chapter 2. And it's in mine a couple pages in, but it starts with the young woman. The young woman was tall. But uh, I, I only want to hit it just because it just... it, it I think it's... Oh, yeah, I've got it. All right, yeah. nice. Yeah, it shows Hawthorne's style, and then it also kind of 
just shows how important Hester's beauty is to the whole thing where he takes all this time to just, and I'm only reading part of it where this is in paragraphs and paragraphs of, of her skill, her beauty. And then we talked about like her ability to make beauty, like with her needlepoint and pearl and all this. And, and I guess even broader, like the kind of the female or the woman's ability to make beauty or, or we could go even broader with that. But yeah, uh, this section, the young woman was tall with a figure of perfect elegance on a large scale. She had dark and abundant hair, so glossy that it threw off the sunshine with a gleam, and a face which, besides being beautiful from regularity of feature and richness of complexion, had the impressiveness belonging to a marked brow and deep black eyes. She was ladylike, too, after the manner of the feminine gentility of those days, characterized by a certain state and dignity, rather than by the delicate, evanescent, and indescribable grace, which is now recognized as its indication. And never had Hester Prynne appeared more ladylike in the antique interpretation of the term than as she issued from the prison. Those who had before known her and had expected to behold her, dimmed and obscured by a disastrous cloud, were astonished and even startled to perceive how her beauty shone out and made a halo of the misfortune and ignominy. Fuck. Ignominy. Ignom yeah, because I was wondering, <laughs> that word's in this book a lot, isn't it? I was like... Yeah, <laughs> in which she was enveloped. And it just, that's the whole section that I, yeah, that's it. And it goes on and on, listeners, that keeps going on about her, her beauty and how, how graceful and, and how feminine and, and antique and classic and, and just yeah. how important that is. And maybe, I don't know if it was meant to imply, but I just wanted to be like, yeah, like this out of, of her beauty and this like what the people were feeling when they saw it too, that halo of the misfortune. Like, yeah. And like, I feel like at this point, because this is the beginning and it's when we're first seeing her, it's it obviously you're deciding what you think of her as the reader. And it feels like she is going to be like a more mischievous and willful type of character at this point because that's how she behaved in this scenario. And he's obviously doing that on purpose to make you think that she might be the type of person who will do more like simple things. Um, but then, yeah, for the rest of the book, she isn't like this at all. She like sort of dedicates her life to virtue and the, the pursuit of trying to be good, um, which is strange. But I guess in this, she is actually more like the way Pearl is, as Pearl grows up. Yeah, what do we think of Pearl? I love Pearl. I absolutely love Pearl. I know I know a little girl called Pearl as well, who's sort of a bit like this in personality. She's like really, really cute, almost cartoon-like with curly hair. And I was thinking of her when I was reading this. Um, interestingly with Pearl as well, I feel like something that happens is... Hester is seen as young and beautiful at the beginning and then as Pearl gets older even when she's only like six or seven years old I feel like there's a turn where like they start to talk about Pearl in like a way like a it all gets a bit like lolly-ish did you notice that <laughs> yeah 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 because like the sailors are trying to kiss her and like um all like everyone's like obsessed with how beautiful she is and she's the most beautiful little girl anyone's ever seen it feels very like pedo vibes to me it's kind of <laughs> because i guess i guess that's the thing i guess yeah because that they're, they're giving her they keep giving her this fairy like or nymph or like mermaidy type of <laughs> aspect and i guess all of those were sort of like elfish children that were also somewhat like sexualized and that's yeah. 
that's what they do with her. And it, it is, yeah, they keep calling her like an elf child or something. And I guess it's supposed to imply that she's not like other children. And even like the way she speaks, like she's a very mouthy seven-year-old. <laughs> uh, I the... feel like actually what he's getting across is like to me anyway, I don't know if this is what the way it would have came across at the time, but I feel like actually they couldn't, they, he couldn't be making her sound more normal. Like she is a normal child because she's not and willful and she won't do as she's told. And she tries, she she does things for attention and she hurts her mum, but then as soon as she makes the mum upset, she feels bad about it. And I feel like it, the more they try to get, the more Nathaniel Hawthorne tries to get across that she's this demon child, the more he gets across that she's actually just a normal toddler slash young child. Um, and that the relationship between the mum and the child is exactly like, like the, the mum being like Hester being like, is my child actually a demon? It was just the thoughts of horribly all parents right. when the kids being like an absolute little fucker and like having a tantrum on the floor. Like I'm sure all parents like look at their kid in that way sometimes. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. Yeah, absolutely. And it is like Pearl's almost set up in the story. If I were to go a little bit further, it would be like she's set up as almost the moral compass in a lot of ways. Like yeah. where she is set up as she's like, Will he hold our hand in front of everybody, mommy? Oh, you know, like like and she refuses to even acknowledge the minister or Mr. Dimesdale or, or Reverend Dimesdale with uh b- because she knows almost instinctively where she's like, Well, he's not being honest, you know. Yeah. Like, and Hester's and like, oh, oh, shut up, child. You don't know anything. You're only a little child. Right. But she does. She's extremely intelligent, and she completely sees the situation for what it is. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 she's she's fun. She's one of the more fun too. Like she's the she's the one that is that is. There's always this thing in literature where the character that is brash or saying what everybody's always thinking but like afraid to say, like there's there's the characters that are that are put in place to to say what everyone's thinking but isn't saying are always everybody's favorite because they're just kind of like uh, yeah. a lot of fun like it's always <laughs> a lot of fun because you know who's doing that in a real social setting most people aren't but like in a fictionalized setting it is kind of everybody likes that character yeah like that kind that's of, true that and yeah i think it is sent to be you're supposed to like her and you're supposed to see that she's more morally pure if not just from her child you know being a seven-year-old girl but she actually understands more than she knows or even if she doesn't understand it all the way she knows at such a base level she understands what's happening that she's able to provide wisdom even like you know yeah i love that whole scene like the whole scene as you're saying like when when hester is led out of the prison and through the people um there's like a couple of things about that firstly 
it actually really made me laugh the way that they're describing the other women like the sort of matronly like the jealous matronly women who just like they're describing them as being like of beef and ale of their native (laughs) land and like they're describing them as being like the most crude and vulgar sort of like big busted um hard-faced like english women um and i loved it i was like completely here for it um and they clearly like really just really jealous of Hester and that, like they actually didn't want to just have to wear this scarlet letter they wanted to be like put to death and right. there was one woman who was beautiful and like delicate and kind and she didn't want that and that's clearly because she's also beautiful so she's like more kindly to Hester's plight whereas these ugly old whores like no they're not whores are they? they're puritans these ugly old dames like just wanted <laughs> to be put to death and then the other thing that I found um, shocking was when the man in the crowd sees her and they, she she sees him and she's scared of him. I was just thinking it was like her long lost love in some way that was coming for her. And then I was like, but why is she scared? And then when it turned out to be this man who was a husband in England, was it? his husband in England, and he'd never made it over. So that's obviously when she had this affair with the minister um like he it seems like he when he was coming over he ended up going like living with the indians for a bit or something is that what happened is yeah. that is that why he took ages because people thought that he'd like died at sea i think it was something like yeah he was captured and held hostage right. by a local tribe there and this is it's it's sometimes this is depicted accurately in like you know pop culture and movies and stuff and a lot of times now times it's not but there i remember it's always we at least in school and stuff they don't teach you how intermingled most of the kind of native tribes were with the settlers and a lot of this stuff i mean they do but it's also you know we have thanksgiving coming up here in the u.s and that is like about the the tribes and the and the the pilgrims kind of coming together right uh but yeah, like, so when they mentioned that, like, yeah, there's like the tribes are coming to see because they know something's going on in this kind of, yeah, English village or the English colony that's set up on the shore there. And they would come and see the hangings or like whoever was put on stone to death or something like in the. Yeah, because this thing, was a was very, a this wasn't yeah. really that much a brutal a scene compared to usual. But I'm getting the feeling that what it's trying to get across is because it was such a new colony with full of such hope and they were so virtuous that they and they were so puritan and they had such hope for this new place that they'd gone to that they saw they saw everything as like a huge crime so they saw hester standing up there with this scarlet letter on her with the baby as being like as bad as hanging someone um because it things hadn't deteriorated yet to the latest state of like hangings and punishing people to that extent yeah Absolutely. And I guess, it, yeah, and it's trying to show how easily that can happen to like that. And like we said, like we, we're witnessing something like this now. And I think people are being dishonest about how quickly it can happen. It doesn't take much for this to, to really come back in full force here, as we saw over COVID, as we saw over all these different things in the last few years. Uh, I did want to touch the uh, the Scarlet Letter to... Um, uh, 
another kind of longer passage, but in terms of like the purpose of the Scarlet Letter on the breast, there's like an obvious purpose, I feel like, and then there's like kind of deeper, or we could even go like like further kind of crazy symbolic shit if we wanted to, was, you know, anything goes. Uh, but this is on page 154 in mine, and that's chapter 13. Uh, a little bit longer, but I'll, I'll read it and we'll chat. Uh, it was due in part to all these causes, but still more to something else, that there seemed to be no longer anything in Hester's face for love to dwell upon. Nothing in Hester's form, though majestic and statue-like, that passion would ever dream of clasping in its embrace. Nothing in Hester's bosom to make it ever again the pillow of affection. Some attribute had departed from her, the permanence of which had been essential to keep her a woman. Such is frequently the fate, and such the stern development, of the feminine character and person, when the woman has encountered, and lived through, an experience of peculiar severity. If she be all tenderness, she will die. If she survive, the tenderness will either be crushed out of her, or, and the outward semblance is the same, crushed so deeply into her heart that it can never show itself more. The latter is perhaps the truest theory. She who has once been woman, and ceased to be so, might, at any moment, become a woman again, if there were only the magic touch to effect the transfiguration. We shall see whether Hester Prane ever, were ever afterwards so touched and transfigured. <clears throat> and this is kind of the description of the Scarlet Letter. And I was just thinking, yeah, like the purpose of the Scarlet Letter, it's so much more than just be like a visual representation, mm. like so that everybody sees. Like it is meant to break her. Like it is meant to break her spirit, yeah. break her confidence as a woman, and even break her beauty, uh, yeah. maybe like in some ways. Mm. Like it's meant to... Uh, just break this person individually and make them feel less than in some way. Mm. But I don't know. Yeah. Your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah. I actually loved that bit, but I really read that as rather than being it about the, the Scarlet Letter, it actually was sort of about going through like a heartbreaking or traumatic situation that you have to then recover from. And then if you are to be like a strong person, like she clearly is, um, she either has to be like really harsh or like lock the trauma away inside of herself or both. Um, something I did really like about the way the Scarlet Letter was described was I liked how, even though it's just, well, firstly, she was allowed to create it herself, wasn't she? She embroidered it herself, which is strange. I don't know why they let her do that. But I guess it's good that they did because it was... Uh, it was like a necessary part of the story that, that she made the Scarlet Letter. And then Pearl, because she decorates Pearl in all these beautiful dresses, Pearl is also like a visual representation of the Scarlet Letter. But I liked how, even though it's just fabric, it was as if it was like actually burning through to her chest whenever people looked at it or whenever people interacted with it in any way. I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. And the, the, yeah, the fact that <clears throat> she made it fancy, she like they describe it as the letter itself, like she embroidered the edges in this gold thread that made it shine in the sunlight and like really stand out. And uh, oh, just... so do you think that maybe they just gave her the A, the A letter and then she chose to do that rather than her uh... actually be tasked with making it? I think it was I mean, I don't know enough about the history. I assume it was probably they made her do it as part of the punishment. You have to make your own grave kind of right. thing where, where it's Little very did kind they of know, Puritan. She loved yeah. doing that. She yeah. loved that shit. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, this is going to be the best Scarlet Letter ever made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's 
is going to be the best thing we've got. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, it is like that. It's incredible. It's incredible how, how a symbol like that too would, would, everybody knew what it meant, I guess. It was supposed to be the big letter A, right, for adultery. Um, yeah, and the light because she did all of her good deeds in the community. Like, she was making these dresses like, and rags for the poor, like, made from, like, coarse, grey material, like canvas or something, when she could have just been getting paid to make these fabulous garments for rich, the fancy people, <laughs> like the people, um, the ministers and whatever. Um, but she was choosing to do it, and the poor were just, like, horrible to her and just didn't didn't <laughs> appreciate it at all. Um, but, like, she was doing that. And then they, people, it was almost like people, it said that they decided that A stood for able because she was so able to perform, like, her duties as a woman. And I think there was also an insinuation at some point about the letter A. It was when the letter A was in the sky, when it flashed in the sky, when the minister was having his... Mu- having his nervous breakdown on the cross or whatever. Right. Um, but that was insinuated that that A meant angel because some some other minister was like on his deathbed. But yeah, the one that was assigned to Hester was saying that it actually meant Abel, which I thought, I thought, I found that really touching actually, that they'd, the community had sort of decided that it meant something else because she was so good. But then they all sort of turned against her at the end anyway at the marketplace, didn't <laughs> yeah. they? So it just shows yeah. how fickle people are anyway. And they had, I like that at the end too, where, where they, they kind of like, you know, after the minister dies or has his heart attack or whatever on like the public, um, whatever platform or whatever in the middle of the market, they were like, uh, the stockades, I guess. <laughs> like, uh, mm. he, they, they, when she comes back to the village and she, she just like wears it, like when she doesn't have to anymore, like later on. Oh, yeah. At like the very end. And, and they, they he kind of describes it as, she weakens the power that this letter has by doing it voluntarily when she didn't yeah. have to, by like, and making the symbol mean less or be more positive yeah. than it was. Yeah. yeah. Changing the meaning of the symbol through this kind of act of courage. Act yeah. Of, uh, you could even say it's very Christian, maybe, like very, very uh, embrace your sin. Yeah, exactly. Figure, by yeah, embracing yeah. it, I feel like. She embraces the sin so much that it makes her really seem very virtuous throughout. Whereas the minister, um, for your listeners who haven't read the Scarlet Letter, um, yeah, basically the guy at the beginning, um, her husband, who he's like a deformed guy who I think he's like a bit of a hunchback or something. He's got like a deformed one shoulder higher than the other type of thing. He's like this older guy that she got that she married in England, and she thought he got lost at sea. And then he turns up after he's captured by the Indians, and he sees her on the pub in the public square on the platform. But in but he doesn't associate himself with her because he wants he doesn't want to he doesn't want to like bring himself down, which is very like scheming and manipulative, I guess. Um, but then basically he makes it his mission, doesn't he, to bring down the minister because the minister's hiding this lie that he had this trust with Hester Prynne. And that Pearl's actually his child. And this minister is, like, loved by all because he's such a virtuous, pious uh, disciple of God or whatever. And I, I and hadn't considered that pussy. either. He's just a total <laughs> pussy. He's, like, he's just lying to everyone. And they think that this, like, tremor in his voice and, like, his feeble way of being, they think it's because he's, like, so in service of God and he's, you know, he's so, like, giving himself to God, but really it's just because he's 
done all of this and he feels guilty about it. I didn't think about that either. The fact that her husband, or what's his name, uh, Chillingworth, um, or, or whatever. Oh, yeah, but it's so funny as well. Though. Like, he never says what his original name was. Say his original right. name was just something normal, and he gets, say it was just like John Smith, and then he gets this person, and <laughs> like, I know, I'll call myself Roger Chillingworth. Like, it's like such a weird and stupid name, because so, he's made up the name, and it, it sounds like so made up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. And he pretends and, and to be a doctor just because he's been doing some, like, peyote or whatever with the Indians. He's been to, right. like, a couple of, like, peyote ceremonies and he's decided that he's a fucking doctor now, even though he's not got a diploma. <laughs> and the colony just take him in as, as such. He's like, yeah. hello, I'm Roger Chillingworth. I'm a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, and and I didn't even think of, when you you bringing all that up, like, how cowardly... Chillingworth was in that scene where I didn't Both even of them, him and the minister, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas, like, yeah, like he was, and then not just the cowardly; they were both cowardly for years after, you know, like. I feel I, like with Roger Chillingworth, uh, rather than it being cowardliness, I feel like it's more Machiavellian self-interest, where he realized that if he was associated with Hester when he got there, then he his life w- wouldn't go the way he wanted it to go. But he could manipulate the situation, and he could bring the minister down and control him all while gaining position for himself whereas the minister does feel like pure cowardice and and sort of vanity as well yeah and i was thinking along the lines of the ending for chillingworth and stuff where he's everything falls apart and all his plan for vengeance you know leaves him ruined uh and and it's it's maybe that gets back to the morality tale thing where it's maybe even the Christian allegory where it's like, if you're going to harbor this vengeful feeling for Mm. years, for this unforgivingness for years, it will eventually shrivel you up, you know, like kind of like as he shrivels away at the end and (laughs) like a a fucking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because all he cared about was his revenge. And after the minister died, he had no will to live anymore because he was just living solely for revenge. Right. And they took it away from him. Yeah. Like they took it away by confessing, another very christian allegorical kind of yeah like life lesson morality lesson in that right like the truth shall set you free right yeah, <laughs> like the, yeah like... it's very interesting that roger chillingworth <laughs> the stupid name uh, that he left all of his like property and money to pearl that was surprising the bastard child yeah, yeah and then she was like the richest heiress in America, which wouldn't have been difficult because there's only a couple of like little colonies and not that many sort of European <laughs> people over there anyway. So I guess it wasn't that big a deal overall. But she suddenly owned property in England and in America because of Roger Chillingworth, the daddy who did not step up. The stepdad who didn't step up. Oh no, wait. Oh no, no, because it's not the stepdad who didn't step up. He just, he was just the <coughs> ex-husband of her mum, I suppose. Yeah. And there is, uh, I did want to mention this one little thing because uh, I just related, I just thought of Twitter immediately and this is my Twitter brain, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it, was uh, it is remarkable that persons who speculate the most boldly often conform with the most perfect quietude to the external regulations of society. The thought suffices them without investing itself in the flesh and blood of action. So it seemed to be with Hester. And this kind of like, I just immediately went to Twitter <laughs> where it's kind of, they speculate the most boldly, often conform with the most perfect quietude to the external regulations of society. Yeah. 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 
Just the thought suffices. Yeah. Like, no, the actual action. Just the thought totally. is enough to make them feel like they're not conforming while they are. Yeah, of. totally. Yeah, I thought that too. Not not specifically yeah. about Twitter, but just the way things are. <laughs> it's, it's just my mind being obsessed with it. Like I just oh, too much, <laughs> you know. Like yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is actually very. It is kind of feminist, but it's it does. Now I'm thinking about it because it. P- Roger Chillingworth is like in a very unfavorable light. The minister really is. Like, these characters have not very many redeeming qualities as far as I'm concerned. But then Hester does, and Pearl does too. There's, like, hope for them. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it comes after they tell the truth. Like, and Pearl's constantly harping on that too. You know, like, Pearl is, Pearl is uh, uh, harping on her mother to be like, Mother, what are you, you know this man don't talk to that man he's 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 not being honest he's leading you on he's yeah. like yeah but i did want to get to that point where we learn about the truth like what actually happens where like the pastor and his parishioner in chapter 17 uh where we learn that it was dimesdale that uh had the kid with hester and then was a coward and let her be punished um for years almost a decade with a with a child and not doing anything for it and <laughs> yeah but yeah uh okay this little scene hester preen looked into his face but hesitated to speak yet uttering his long restrained emotions so vehemently as he did his words here offered her the very point of circumstances in which to interpose what she came to say she conquered her fears and spoke such a friend as thou hast even now wished for, said she, with whom to weep over thy sin, thou hast in me the partner of it. Again she hesitated, but brought out the words with an effort. Thou hast long had such an enemy, and dwellest with him under the same roof. And this is basically the little segment where we learn that actually it was Dimesdale that uh, had the affair with Hester, and that <clears throat> Chillingworth is her uh, late uh, ex-husband. <laughs> Yeah. Who was living with the minister at the time and, like, I guess slowly poisoning him or something? Yeah, because, like... like, basically what had happened earlier is the minister had been unwell. I guess, looking back, it was because he did this crime of, like, sleeping with Hester and creating this child um, and keeping it secret and it was making him ill. And then Roger Chillingworth arrives and then he um, he says to Hester in, like, a quiet moment when he, he goes to her into her prison as, like, her she's having, like, a mental breakdown or something... Um, I think that's wait. When is that? Is that the night? Is that? I think that's the it's night. In the forest. Yeah. I think. I think when. Do you know when? Um, she's been stood on the platform for three hours or however long she's got to do it for. That night, she gets taken back in the prison, doesn't she? And then right. she's having a mental breakdown and going totally crazy. And then Roger Chillingworth is brought in as her doctor, um, to, to calm her down. And then he says he basically says to her, "Oh." I'm gonna get. I'll always get. I always get my man. I'm gonna like find out who the guy is that did that. You know that you had this affair with, um, and then somehow he ends up moving in with the minister to take care of him. So he must have. He must have had some suspicions at that point, mustn't he? That it was the minister for some reason, and he moves in with him, and they're sort of like friends and. Um, Roger Chillingworth is doing his alchemy stuff and the minister is doing his clerical, I don't know, he's doing all of his like priestly readings and then they're sort of friends and then basically over time 
Roger Chillingworth is trying to find out like for sure that he's the guy. And when the minister falls asleep one day, Roger Chillingworth opens his vestments or whatever, and he sees the scarlet letter underneath. And then basically this forest scene is Hester like revealing this to him, isn't she? She's revealing to the the minister that his friend who's been living with all this time is actually his enemy. And this really right. made me think of like he was the minister was like so dramatic in this bit. It's like basically he's living in a shared house and he's found out that his roommate's a total dick. And then instead of just like moving out or like changing his life, he really dramatically is like I guess maybe I should run away to another place or maybe I should die right here. And it's like, get a grip, man. All you've got to do is, like, move out. Just move out. You don't need to die. Yeah, well, it gets to that kind of the guilt, right? Like, that kind of guilt as a motivation in this kind of a way that it... Where, I mean, there are... I guess guilt is a motivation in a lot of ways. and it, But it, it is kind of... It, it is selfish in a lot of ways, too, where where I guess eventually Dimesdale does it for Hester. But for those seven years leading up to when he actually confesses in the town, you know, the marketplace in front of everybody in the village, they're like, he's doing it for to help her, but also for his own like selfish reasons, you know, like yeah. it's almost like to absolve yourself of guilt yep. for, for knowingly doing wrong, at least not yep. if it's accidental or whatever, but like for knowingly doing wrong, there's like a selfishness that taints the redemption maybe, or. Yeah. Of the minister, you mean at the end? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, like, yeah. you just feel like when she was, she had to bear all of this for like seven years after getting the Scarlet letter. And she just did that all very like in a dignified, quiet way. And then with the minister, when he decided to reveal all at the end, he like drags he drags her and the kid like down with him and like just doesn't give a shit. He's like he does his what's it called like his election speech or something. <laughs> his like big thing that's like some big deal to him, which is they were gonna run away together, but he decides to like he has to do his like stupid election speech or whatever it is first, and then after he's done that and he's like won over all the hearts and minds of all the people, he decides to like. <laughs> Just totally right. fuck everything up by just revealing that it, that he, you know he goes and he finally stands by Hester and the kid, but he doesn't give her any choice in it. It's like, right. no offense, but this is like a really male way to behave. Of like, <laughs> like women will like think things out for ages and how they're going to affect everybody involved, and they'll they'll talk something through with a guy like to make sure it's all okay. He he just like bumbles out and he's like, uh, uh, and he just like pulls, drags everyone down with him to the ground, drags the tablecloth and like all of the wine fills right. up. Do you know you know like that type of thing? He just oh yeah completely doesn't give a shit at all and just like does it because he feels like it. And it puts her in danger the way he does it. Like, yeah, it puts her and the child Pearl in danger for him to do that. And then he just dies. Yeah. Selfish. Right. That he just then exactly. he's just like, all right, see ya, and then he just dies. Fuck. But yeah, he just totally doesn't think about it. He only thinks about how it affects himself. And then as he's dying, he even sort of tells her, I think he says something like, she she wants reassurance that they'll be together in the next life, and that that all of this meant something, like this revelation meant something for their little family. And he just is like, what is? It? I can't remember what he says. It's just something like, I don't think God would want that, or just something along the lines of. He yeah. just rejects her even on his deathbed. And I like that you did bring up yeah, like the kind of masculine versus feminine because it, it, it's, it's, it's talked about in this novel and it's talked about in the sexist way because this is from 1850 listeners, but it's still, it is important. And I think 
even contemporary wise in the kind of you know current society there's there's a tendency to pretend that there isn't a line between the masculine and feminine um because there's a lot of overlap but then there's also a lot of a lot of uh you know just red lines that just to just yeah, like you said a very masculine way to do this cowardly, <laughs> and, like, and then to make the woman suffer. And or just, the child or just, or not even the cowardliness, just the sort of like unthinkingness of just being like, oh, I guess I'll just do this, and then right. doing it, and then the, then she has to bear the consequences of that kind of thing. And he's scot free because he's fucking dead. Like you know, no, <laughs> no consequences for him. But I think that does matter, and I think it matters in this novel, particularly in terms of like the motherhood angle. And the kind of like the, the the connection that the that the mother has to the child that that the father can never really have uh, in terms of you know just like carrying the child to birth and then caring for it and raising it and all of that yeah. like there's just something in it that men can never be a part of um, yeah and I don't mean that in like a you know men shouldn't care about it I mean it in like a you know it's just a it's just a thing yeah. that's part of life where we have like yeah, you know, women have this bond with the offspring that, you know, men, fathers also do, but not, it's just a different bond, you know, like it's a different, yeah, yeah. and the kind of motherhood really. Like, yeah. I feel like at the bit where, do you know, when he's done his speech and then he goes and stands to it, stands next to them in the crowd and then holds the kid's hand and stuff. I feel like it seems like he's doing the right thing and he's doing like the bold thing for them. But then it, you realize in the end that it was just for his own like vanity and because he wanted to reveal it and it kind of wasn't for the reasons that it seemed of like standing by them as a little family but i don't know what it was about the writing that made that clear but something did make that clear i guess it's because he showed that he didn't think he would be with them in the afterlife i suppose yeah and maybe it's maybe it's pearl that shows it that that you know where, where where Hester is more relieved than the Pearl is when they first concoct that plan of leaving on the ship, you know, in four days time when they have their little kind of meet up in the, in the forest and we, it's revealed yeah. to us as readers that it was Dimesdale the whole time. And he's been a coward and made this, made Hester suffer. And just, you see Pearl's reluctance is the, maybe what shows us that his suddenly confessing and coming to terms with his quote unquote sins, right? Like his kind of, adultery that he committed and then let Hester suffer for she's yeah. not buying it you know whereas whereas Hester's like oh he's he, he's gonna love us very much he's gonna you know he's gonna take care of us like a father should blah 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 and then yeah. Hester, and then Pearl is like mm, is he gonna hold our hand in the you know in the marketplace like and she's like not yeah. today child and then Pearl's like well then he's not you know like, then he's not um, yeah and then even when he does yeah it's like <laughs> not really true I don't know why he does that he could just like he could just have not. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's gonna it... die anyway, isn't he? Or maybe he died because of that. Or maybe he died because he's so vain and he couldn't stand that everybody knew that he was there. But I love how like <laughs> this is what I mean. I feel like Nathaniel Hawthorne is actually a feminist. Was a feminist, weirdly or something, because he like not obviously by like the modern day version of what that is, but he was definitely on Hester's side and. The way that he, even after the minister behaved in this way, after his death, people would, like, speculate. Instead of 
like if when whatever she did they would just like jump to the worst conclusion but with the minister they were speculating that maybe he just went to stand near the sinful mother and child to stand by them in his in his last hour and like as if he just did this good deed and all of this stuff and they they still wanted to see like a really saintly side of him even even after it had been revealed obviously like the the truth had been revealed yeah i think that's a hundred percent a hundred percent that's that's oh yeah like like we the feminist angle and of course this book has been written about endlessly in terms of feminist angles and different ways you can interpret it and, and project onto it if you wanted but it's like yeah like it definitely and i think a lot of writers at that time right now they get a lot of shit for not being feminist enough but if you go back and you look at the context of 1850, you know, this was just the beginning mm. of that first kind of suffrage movement, at least in the U.S. Like these were just like we slavery was still legal here at the time, like in, in the United yeah. States. Like it was, it was just a, women were second class citizens like in the U.S. at the t Like it's just and then for him to be able to see this, the sympathetic side of that where we're to kind of show the suffering of it and, and why it's bad, it it. it it's not given enough credit for being, I mean, it's sure it is, it, it is, you know, given credit for that, but yeah. it is like, you know, it is very much a feminist text written by a man in 1850. Let's, you know, like it, it's not what you would think, but it, it I really. I do want to, I want to know more about Nathaniel. I need to, I didn't really get a chance up to now, but I want to know more about him because I did relate to the introduction bit when, when he's talking about the custom house and he's talking about how he only had to go there for like four hours a day or whatever it was. But it was like he just didn't seem to be able to do any writing like outside of his working hours, and I was kind of like annoyed at him for that and like jealous. I was like, bloody hell! Like try working eight or nine hours a day <laughs> in a in an environment you don't want to work in, and see if you'd be able to write outside of that. But yeah, he was saying that, and that was really relatable. How he was talking about like he'd go home and like in the moonlight, which is supposed to be like an inspiring time when everything takes a new a new shade, uh, like that's like the perfect writing time he still just couldn't come up with any inspiration. Right. I found that bit interesting in the introduction. I do, I do want to know more about him. I, I know nothing about him, really. And his his most famous books are this one and then The, the House of the Seven Gables is the, the other. And that's another right. kind of New England kind of story, you know. Have uh, you read that one? I read it a long time ago in college when I was forced to, so I was half-assing it. And, you know, I, yeah. I don't feel comfortable being, like saying that I've, yeah, I, I know all about it. No, <laughs> but I have read it, like been forced to read it when I was getting my, my bachelor's. Uh, it's, yeah. <clears throat> and, and I mean, it's good. I mean, he, he's, I should read it again now that I'm older and, and, and more educated on it. Yeah, because it's classic one, but it's also like kind of similar in terms of, uh, just the legends that sprung up through, like you said, we, we talked a little bit at the beginning where you said, yeah, the kind of witch trial legends that sprung up throughout Europe and all over the UK. And then were kind of, you know, exported to the new colonies and the Americas as, as all the European nations were coming over and, and, and putting in colonies all over. It's, it's, yeah, there's the legends that develop around that, like the person, the black man in the woods, right? We didn't even touch on that. Yeah. Like the, 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 the man that takes your name in his book and blood and then you're cursed, you know, and that's what yeah. Mistress Hibbins or whatever the, the, the governor's sister was alleged to have done and she's a yeah, witch. Yeah, and, and... and Mistress Hibbins, like when um, Hester and the child were leaving the governor's house and Mistress Ribbins, Hibbins, whatever she's called, like shouted out the window to Hester, like, do you want to come 
do you want to come come with me to the forest to see the black man and we'll have some fun or whatever? And then Hester's like, I can't, I've got to take the kid home. <sighs> and then they're like, even then, you know, like the governors had just been talking about taking the child off of her because, you know, she's not a fit mother or whatever, or the kid right. they could put her somewhere better. But then that was illustrating how the child saves her soul in many situations because she could have gone off with this, like, Mrs. Hib- Mrs. Hibbins if she had been alone. And that just reminded me of, like, any time you'd be invited to, like, a rave or a horrible party by, like, a sinister, <laughs> like, character like that and, like, offering you drugs or whatever. I don't know, that, that's what that Mrs. Hibbins reminded me of. Oh, yes. Just, like, a sinister, like, MDMA, like... <laughs> dealer in Glastonbury. I was going to say, that's very female. I was, I'm not, I was not usually invited to parties by men and offered drugs, but I imagine most women were. <laughs> you know, like, No, but I mean, like, just yeah. by, like, not by men, but, like, oh, sometimes by men, but, yeah. you know, just, like, the mischievous things you can get up to when you're younger or, like, going on right, nights right. out or people tempting you into doing things. Oh, it yeah. felt like that's what that whole thing was, like, the Mrs. Hibbins thing was trying to get Hester to go and do something like that. But right. because she had a kid, she couldn't, and she had to just go home instead. And maybe, yeah, like her purity uh, makes her immune, you know, like in those types of Hester's such a good person and is trying to do the right thing in almost every circumstance that it prevents her from making mistakes like that. But then it's also like, who would really want to go to the woods with that like weird old woman? <laughs> who's like an absolute freak. Like, like, who would even yeah. want that? What good could happen at that? Like, what's even tempting in that, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah like you're like oh yeah come to the woods with me yeah <laughs> as if that is if that yeah it always ends well as if it's yeah. like really enticing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i will say girl like as a kid i mean maybe it's it's different now but like the woods was like freedom like when i remember growing up like when you would go to the woods behind the court or something like it was freedom like no adults no supervision you could jump out of the tree and nobody was yelling you know like you could is that because are you from somewhere that like looks like this type of place yes i'm from baltimore and it's 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 honestly the weather's not as cold and rainy as like uk but like it the the actual like climate is very similar and i guess if you kind of look at the globe like it's kind of on this like at least the massachusetts area is very much like the the, the england weather with the snow mm. and stuff that you get uh and the cold that happens in and stuff but yeah i was from an area that looked exactly like this pretty much the entire kind of northeast basically where i'm from like maryland virginia area about halfway on the american east coast and then all the way up towards maine like the top towards canada right, there yeah. is basically like the same kind of oh. landscape so yeah, so this very is like wooded. Relatable scenery. Yeah, very wooded. And how uh, come? How come you live in Vegas? Oh, I we came here because my wife, uh, my wife's career. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at Patreon.com/slash/HeavyBoard. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard.
and uh, and I learned from Sex and the City because Mr. Big moved to what Napa Valley or something. Is that right. in California? Right. That's yeah. like a wine thing as well, isn't it? Oh yeah. I'm. Are you a big Sex and the City fan? Yes, but Sex and the City is obviously the downfall of millennial women <laughs> at the same time. But I'm like, I, I watched it all like from a scandalous age, from like 11 years old, basically. When that and when that, that box set came out, that big pink DVD box yeah. set. Yes. 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 Yeah. And like I've been watching it since then, and then basically I'm now rewatching it um, a lot of the time with a man who is being very judgmental and critical, and like of, of like their behaviours. And like I've been watching it, like his sort of like super ego of like thought is coming into it. And then I'm like, actually, yeah, it's terrible because I'm starting to agree over time that Carrie is like a self-involved dick, and <laughs> like and Samantha is just a gay man. And like right. they're all like ran through whores, but like I'm definitely watching it in like a much different way because I'm watching it with a man. My but favorite that's was Charlotte. That's what you get yeah. for making a man watch it with you. My favorite was always Charlotte. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's always a male favorite, obviously, because <laughs> she's like the hottest and purest one. Well, yeah, and she was like the least, yeah, like messy, I guess maybe, but I. Uh, but she's yeah. pretty messy though. She just yeah. like hides it by like acting as if she's like holier than thou kind of thing. Yeah, I've actually. Have you watched it all as well, then? Yeah, I've seen I've seen all of them up through the second movie, but I haven't That's watched any you, of the new series. Because you're a wife guy, that's why you had to watch it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was well. My wife's never seen it, but when I was, it's a long story. But when that box set came out, and I don't know, I'm a millennial. You're a millennial, right? Like you're. A, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 34, and uh, when that box set came out, I was like, you know, 12, 13, 14, or right, something. Yeah. And I had yeah. a girlfriend at the time who was very into it. You know, same age, like 12, 13, 14, and she's like, we watch yeah. it. So whenever we 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 spent like months, you know, when we would hang out or go over each other's <laughs> places, in that kind of high school dating way, she yeah. uh, she would we would put it on. I watched the entire scene, and I was relatively into it. There are certain storylines I think that are better than others, but yeah, I've never been one to shy away from anything. Like I'm always somebody's like, I'll I'll sit through it like sure is it any yeah. good you know like is it any yeah. good like that's really all i care about i feel like <laughs> yeah. i feel like all boyfriends secretly watched it at that time and didn't say and no no one would admit it but then on twitter i'm learning that like many men have seen it but like in real life men pretend that they haven't seen it oh uh, i can't stand liars on i mean everybody a bunch <laughs> of people lie online but yeah i can't stand it there's a bunch of stuff that people say about about I mean, the discourse between the sexes is always a fucking eye roll or headache, usually, when you're doing it through mm. Twitter, but it is like, yeah, I mean, I saw the fucking movies in theaters, like, I saw the, uh, at least the first two, um, which were not very good, I would say, but, uh, you know. Uh, oh, I love them. You like the first, you, both of them? Which or? one was the one where they go to, like, Saudi Arabia or it's something? the second is that one, the, one? Yeah. the second one. Yeah. And then one of them, like, Carrie gets left at the altar by Big. Is that the first one? Yeah, yeah, with the bird yeah. in her hair. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't think I've seen the third one either then. Or maybe, I can't remember if I have or not. Well, it was delayed so long, and I think because the woman, Kim Cattrall, like, didn't want to do it, she was, like, done with playing uh, Samantha, and she's still basically done with it. Like, she didn't come back for the reboot and all that. Like, she's like, nah, I'll just take oh, my money and Oh, she's coming back. She is, she is coming back to the reboot, though, because I've been watching the reboot. It's terrifying. They've all got the most horrible plastic surgery. Everyone except Samantha <laughs> looks like... Charlotte looks like a Halloween lantern. She looks absolutely <laughs> horrible. Yeah, yeah. And then I liked the... Uh, I, I mean, I liked the kind of 
it's it's soap opery and it's definitely for women like in terms of like but always the best scenes in the in that show were them sitting at lunch or whatever around a table and just kind mm. of gossiping right like those are always my favorite i guess maybe it's just the writer yeah. in me or something but like yeah, when they're yeah. all kind of gossiping around and i think <clears throat> you know that's just the dialogue how hip it was how quick how kind of sexy it was especially for the time like where you had um I, I don't want to say they were talking like men about about it, but it was like just you know. But they kind of the, were. That, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. what they were making a point of doing that, weren't they? Right. Yeah, and like you said, yeah, like kind of the behavior too, right? Like Samantha's behavior more of like kind of a, a gay man than like a straight woman was <laughs> yeah. in her forties, you know, with like <laughs> yeah, like forties <clears> slash <throat> fifties. Yeah, yeah. She says she's in her forties, but yeah. Um. I did want to ask you this, uh, and we talked about it a little bit with kind of the Christian allegory and all that. Like, how would how does faith play into this? And I know there's like the obvious religion angles we can go down, but I think it, it's broader than that too, in terms of like faith and um, just belief, right? Like, who's lying, who isn't? Why do you believe that they are? You know, like who do you trust? This kind of faith in that way, you yeah. get broader idea of faith, but then also the kind of religious faith. But yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? How, how would you say faith is used or played out into this story? Um, yeah, like, I feel like Hester has, like, ultimate faith in herself, even if she is really, like, depressed and unhappy. She, like, seems to really have faith in her ability to, like, care for her child. And I feel like all the others are just completely faithless, really. I feel like it's, like, the minister is hasn't got, hasn't really got any faith at all. And Roger Chillingworth is just, like, all he cares about is revenge um it was very it has been interesting for me to like think about this aspect because i've just started a job as a research assistant for someone who's writing a book about you know like the whole vatican ii thing oh, um yes. like the vatican ii like set of accountism things so i'm i'm sort of getting to know all of that and it's given me a reason to research like christianity and catholicism and just get to know more about like religion and you know protestantism so having that backdrop which i'm very very recently only just started researching now and then to read this i'm like oh so this is directly coming from that sort of protestantism like that new right. form of the religion that's coming out and this is the results of it so yeah yeah that's very interesting and you're <clears throat> doing you just said you just started doing some research for vatican ii and all that with the yeah so like i know a writer who is writing a book on that um and i'm helping them do research like because they can't possibly there's just so much research that they can't do it all right. themselves and like I'm just interested in doing that so yeah I'm very lucky that I've got the chance to do that but I can't wait to just read all about all about all of this type of stuff because I'm not that well informed on like the pat like the history of Christianity and the kind of I'm only learning little bits about it but I'm really loving it already and this book yeah like I don't know what do you, what do you think about like the faith of people because it's strange how much faith doesn't really seem to take a part in it apart from when it comes to Hester. I feel like she's the only one who really is faithful. Yeah, I agree. I think it's 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 for me the reason I asked that question I was just thinking about it reading it. I was like, "Oh, this would be fun to talk about with Melly." It's like uh it is the reason I, may, I posed it as a broader than just religion side of it is because I think there's there's a couple of different things at, at work here, and I think that's intentional by Hawthorne. You know, like 
he wants to show, you know, I mean, you know, you go to mass, like the mystery of faith, right? Like the kind of there are mm. moments where you take that leap and you disbelieve for that. He wants to talk about the religious side. But then I think there's believing in the goodness of people, which is tied yeah. up in the religious aspect, but can also be separated in some way and be broader in terms of themes. But <clears throat> yeah, I think it is. And, and I've been more fascinated by this recently. And I, I do know probably... I mean, I don't know, I'm not a fucking expert or anything, but I, I know a lot about the, yeah, the history of Christianity and yeah, Vatican II. I have boomer parents, so that they were alive when right. Vatican II was happening and they were raised Catholic yeah. and, and all that in, in a very Catholic city in America here. Uh, and it just, so there is, but, but yeah, I think that the faith is meant to show us, you know, uh, strength and solace in terms of your faith or belief in religion. And then also, <clears throat> kind of used as a crutch too. Like if, if, if like somebody like Dinesdale who was using the faith as a shield for himself to kind of protect yeah. himself because he didn't have enough faith, you would, I could, I could, I would say. Yeah. It's like, it's like that thing of like sometimes an innocent little child who knows nothing about the world, supposedly like Pearl can have more faith than someone who literally does it as a job, like, like Dines, like Dinsdale, whatever he's called. Um, who it's it's his entire purpose in life, but he just hasn't even got any. Like it, it, right. it's like many such cases of people in those situations. Yeah, they're actually yeah. the worst people to be doing it in the first place. Yeah, because there's, and I think people do confuse this, particularly in the fucking you know online discourse and all that, where they do confuse that there is, there is the faith in terms of just believing, um, the religion, and then there's the kind of faith that's used as a proxy to to maybe in like in this novel where they're using the the authority of the faith to punish Hester or using the authority of the faith to treat her as a pariah or like, you know, yeah. excommunicate her from it's, it, it is, uh, you know, it goes both ways. Like it basically, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like it, it does go both ways where, where you get a, a, a <clears throat> you know, a deep meaning out of it when you personally believe, but then also you can be weaponized the faith in, in certain ways and, and I mean, you know, we, throughout history, this is all you're studying the history of Christianity. There's been a lot of that, but it, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I was just always curious, yeah, how it works, and then just like the idea of trust too. Like I was, you know, I said I was, I was raised Catholic um, all the way up through yeah confirmation and all that. Went to Catholic schools, and you know, I was very when I first uh, stopped believing, uh, I would. Um, you know, I was very angry, like I was very like unforgiving, very like, uh, you know, like, like I was betrayed yeah. in some way or lied to. And then, right. but as I got older and I, you know, still very many friends that, that are in the church and, and things like that. And I, I started to realize that, oh, it's not about that so much as the faith. Like I'm, I'm much more fascinated by faith. Uh, than I am by, you know, adhering to a set of rules or something like yeah, that. Or, yeah, yeah, by yeah. the actual religious aspect. Right, yeah. yeah. And the yeah. kind of what that gives you and, and, and how people use it. And, and yeah, so I'm, I'm much not as staunch so as you, I used to be. So yeah. you sort of, like, did believe... Mm-hmm. Did you? Because oh, yeah. you did believe, and then you went through... Then you sort of didn't anymore, and then that caused you some kind of pain. Is that what happened? Uh, yeah, uh... When I was like 17, 18, you know, getting into that mind space, going to college, and then I did get very into what they call the new atheists, right? Richard Dawkins and um, and right, uh, Sam yeah. Harris and Chris Hitchens and, and things like that. I was very into that as a kid, <clears throat> young man. Yeah. And then 
and even them, I think they're very, they are even, um, overzealous about it, uh, calling it dangerous and using historical justifications for it and things where I think that was an yeah. exaggeration, you know, like it's, but you know, when I was young and I, I kind of first discovered that it was, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I honestly, I don't know if I could explain it. Yeah. How that happened or how I came to, to stop. Uh, I think a lot of people do it just because like, or stop with the faith that they were raised in just because they're lazy or they just don't want to deal with it. You know, like they kind of want to stop going. It's just, to the... Yeah. It's just, it's like interesting for me to ask you as yeah, being, yeah. cause, cause like, yeah, because my dad was Catholic, but I didn't really get brought up in that type of... I didn't get brought up as a Catholic because I was living with my mum who wasn't a Catholic. So I didn't go to Catholic school or anything. I didn't have anything beyond being baptised. So aside from really just sort of like going to church with my dad's side of the family in Scotland, like occasionally, or going to the Church of England, which is different, and aside from just sort of saying my prayers like vaguely to, to God and like vaguely believing in it, I didn't have as strong a thing as you, like you know, being completely within the church yeah. and just like fully believing in it. So I feel like actually I didn't ever go through that phase of like losing it and becoming atheist because I, I never had it that strongly in the first place, but I right. feel like I've found it more strongly as an adult maybe. So, I, so I'm always interested when people go through it that way around where when you're a kid, you really, really believe in God and the church and then right. you reject it because I, I wonder what that would feel like because I've never actually, can't really imagine that. Yeah, to, it's to like sort of lose it to attempt to describe it. I mean, it wasn't like a huge, like life shattering moment. You know, I was too young for it to maybe be that to me, you know, right, right. I was just kind of, uh, you know, I'm 17. I like punk rock, you know, like whatever, you know, uh, you're more just like rejecting the right, yeah, of the church, yeah, exactly. Kind of yeah, yeah. And I think there's there's something in America where people it's like a boomer reflex because maybe it's because of Vatican, too. So it comes in here where like the boomers that were raised in the Catholic part of 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 the countries of because of, America, I mean, it's just like all the other. I guess there's there's there are actually huge regional divides in terms of the religion and stuff. And when you get further south, Catholic stops being and it starts being more Protestant or Baptist or yeah. evangelical. And um, but uh yeah, I, I never really had that kind of oh my god, like, like you know, existential because I just I was just too young, I was too stupid to to have right, that. Like, right. like I was losing something. Right, rather than you sort of deeply believing right. in actual God from your own perspective, it's right. more just like that guidance of your parents towards believing in the things you're told at church, which is a di which is a different thing, isn't it? That just feels more like being propagandized to kind of. And I think our, our one of our mutuals, Jack TPN, shout out. He, yeah, he yeah. he talks about this where he talks about you know movie like Spielberg or something. These directors, yeah. these boomer directors, that were very they were rebelling against the Catholic Church because it was a huge part of American life when they grew up. It was less so when yeah. I grew up. You know, like you know, thirty forty years after the boomer generation was coming up. So. Yeah. So it was like a theme in a lot of boomer directors and movies throughout the 60s and 70s and stuff. And uh, mm. and, and in that case, maybe it was a rebellion against more oppressive forces. But, you know, when I was growing up, it was post-Vatican II. It was like 50 years post-Vatican II. You know, it was kind of the refor reformations had started to happen. Uh, so would you, so your mom, because like my dad died earlier this year and I'm oh kind my, of I'm really so sorry. good yeah and like I'm I'm really gutted that I didn't get a chance to talk to him about the Vatican II thing because he was alive when all this right. happened because I've only just sort of become aware of Vatican II over the last like I don't know 
two years, but it wasn't prominent in my mind when he was still alive to like ask him because I hadn't started doing this research thing yet. So like, was you was you aware? Of, was your parents like? Was you aware of this like through your parents since you've been growing up? Then yes, did they mention this? They would talk about so it they all cared, the time. They yeah. cared about it. What did yeah. they think about it? I would say my mother. Uh, they were kids when it happened, but just talking to them as, as adults when I knew that you know my parents, they're. Um, and they're they're in their seventies now. They're they're retired and approaching that that age. Yeah. And it's a, uh, but uh, yeah, my I would say my mother is, is was always more religious um, than my my father was kind of a, a man of science. He was a doctor, and uh, you know, kind of he wasn't mm. like a staunch. I, I do, he never would say that he was an atheist to me growing up or anything like that. But he would very much. Um, you know, thought it was important to take us to like the events. So we would go to mass, you know, Sunday school. I went to Catholic schools yeah. growing up um, and all that. But, <clears throat> you know, I, I, yeah, but they would always talk about it because they were involved, you know, growing up in Baltimore, like the thing, what you did when you grew up as a boomer, you were an altar server, you know, you, you were, you, you know, volunteered in the church, you know, you had to attend the mass every, every Sunday and stuff. And, yeah, they would always talk about how whenever we'd complain or something about mass being long as kids or whatever, they'd be like, "You got no idea," you know, like the like the pre-Vatican two like, masses like your four mom hours. Like the, does your mom like the novus or do like does she does she like the new mass of it being in English and the way that it is more sort of participatory? Did like what what was her view? Was it better? Did she like? Did she feel more positive about the modernization or the way it was before? I think she was. I'd never really asked. I, if I had to guess, I would say she she probably didn't mind it because she was a girl when it happened, you know, and uh, probably just liked that. Yeah, you know, the mass wasn't three hours anymore, and that it wasn't in Latin, and that you didn't you could actually touch the body of Christ and things and 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 all yeah. that. Uh, maybe, but uh, I my grandmother. Speaking of Irish Catholics, yeah, my grandmother. <laughs> uh, she very much loved it and i'd gone to a few latin masses in my youth because you know for easter and things like that in the holidays in the church because my grandmother was very much a part of it and there's a bunch of cathedrals in kind of downtown baltimore like very old you know very uh, catholic churches that are you know quite beautiful gorgeous uh you know old cathedrals yeah. <clears throat> and we would go to they would do they still do occasionally like the kind of old school latin yeah it's mass, really so. difficult to find latin mass over here like, yeah it's really difficult i mean it's difficult here too yeah there's they're yeah. not uh, they're not very prevalent but if you have those big old churches sometimes they do do it around the holidays they'll do like one or two like you know latin masses around easter or christmas and stuff but uh mm. yeah i don't know i mean yeah I know there's like a I whole thing Pope, online Pope right Francis now. I think like put a stop to, they used to be more Latin masses and now it's incredibly hard to find them because Pope huh. Francis has taken them away further than, than before. Right, right, I think right. Benedict reinstated them. Um, so there were, there were Latin masses, but I think, yeah, they're few and far between now. Because one of my mutuals was trying to find a Latin mass for me because... He's a bit trad and he wants he wants me to go to one, but then he couldn't he couldn't find one in right. the whole county. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess I'm not I'm not as familiar with that, but I do see, you know I follow Red Scare and all that, so I do see Dash always going off about it. But I, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't keep up with the. Uh, about Vatican II, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't mm. kept up with the with yeah the kind of the the trad calf wars online <laughs> and and what <laughs> what they're fighting over, but. I only, I'm only being aware of it because it's now my actual job to be aware of it. Right, so yeah. As of two, as of two days ago. So yeah. 
Yeah. I am fascinated by it, though. I am very fascinated. And I think, like I said, more so from I'm very interested in the faith angle of it, you know, uh, and the idea of belief and uh, I don't know. And how all the everybody all over the world can have these different beliefs and that helps them like it, it literally not just provides order and morals, but like spiritual fortitude or like strength you know like like having a faith in something uh you know i guess i maybe i'm like the new atheist i would say were maybe too dismissive of that benefit when they would criticize all these religions and things when that was hot you know when i was a kid and stuff yeah. and they were coming up yeah the the spiritual I, yeah cause, yeah because i feel a little uh, bit like I feel a little bit like with the atheist thing, it's kind of like, so if you're an atheist, the best that's going to happen is you just believe in like this bleak end and like there'd be nothing after it. Whereas if you believe in God, then at worst you'll be seen as a fool who only gets to live in, like, you know, you only get the atheist thing anyway. But at best you can maybe go to heaven and that actually it benefits you to have faith anyway. So it's kind of seems to me to just be like the sensible option to be faithful because just in case you're right. You know? Right, yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't really serve you to be nihilistic about things and you may as well just believe in like the nice fairy tale. <laughs> I don't know, as an adult, I've just came more to the conclusion that like um, that's just, they, they, you know, it's reported, even like scientists have reported a lot about how physiologically it's better for you to believe in god or to have faith in in something spiritual and then who cares whether it's true or not you just may as well go for it and then the more you believe like that then it just like spirals and spirals in a good way to the point where then it really helps you in your life so that's that's just the only way in which i've turned to it because it just seems like the 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 most sensible way to do it rather than to be nihilistic I definitely went right. through like a massive nihilistic phase for ages though, like a very atheist nihilistic phase. It's very like... millennial, yeah. 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 It is it is, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We as much as we try to deny it, I think there are a few things that are very unique to our generation. And even, you know, like you said, you know, you grew up in fucking England like thousands of miles from where I grew up, but it was still these kind mm. of generational things. Whereas like, yeah, the kind of the new atheist movement was hot technology change i mean it just all of these things that you know the liberal movies, feminism yeah yeah sex in the city did my generation sex of women city, so yeah. dirty <laughs> sex in the city did us so dirty yeah i love yeah. it but it really really did what do you what do you mean uh like it's just like watching it again is like watching this going back to the scene of the crime it's kind of like <laughs> just it was just like the pinnacle of liberal feminism of just telling you that like you can just like sleep you can sleep with different guys and you don't need to um I don't know, you don't need to make relationships like the most important thing, your career is more important, whatever. And also that um, if one boyfriend goes, there'll be another after, you know, there'll be another one coming along soon. And it's all this sexual experimentation. It's just something that's very particular to millennials because the generation before wasn't like that. And then obviously Zoomers are sort of not like that either. They're like way more trad. They've gone in way more the other direction, haven't they? And maybe, and I think, you know, people talk about this all the time online, but I think most people are correct when they say there is a yearning for meaning. And I think you see Zoomers, particularly, a lot of them 
are so desperate for it. Like they're, they, they don't even know what to do. Like they don't even know what direction yeah. to head. And, and they're, they're, you know, if it just, whatever comes across the timeline is whatever, Oh, well, you did like run with that one or something. And it's, they, yeah. they haven't even really thought about it. Uh, yeah. But they seem more like naturally religious than us because yeah, we were brought up like, you know, as soon as we came to sort of sentience, um, everything was very atheist and yeah. capitalist and, and then for me like feminist but whereas these guys seem they seem a lot more like naturally religious or like prone to believe in some of these traditional things I don't know maybe the Zoomers will be okay maybe they'll be more okay than we will yeah yeah I do I wonder about that too how much is always exaggerated when we're you know talking about online you know discourse and stuff it's there how much is overblown how much is you know, people are making a huge deal out of something that, you know, maybe is always the case and it kind of goes away, you know, like naturally yeah. or, or we freak out over the slightest little variance for days, you know, when you log in, you're just like, oh God, I'm rolling my yeah. eyes. Yeah, like, I don't like how sad the young people are though, because when I was their age, I was having like so much fun and like, right. I wasn't on the internet <laughs> and I wasn't overthinking things and I was just out with my friends and right. having adventures. Like it does it, do you ever feel like that where like, you feel sad at like how much they're over like analyzing things and like the gender wars between them and like some of them they'll be like a good looking 20 something year old boy or girl and they've never had a girlfriend or boyfriend they've never like had that it's that's crazy it's that's, that's unbelievable to me it's like insane i when i went to grad school it was you know i was 26 when i started grad school and it was so eye opening to me when i met these younger people some of them weren't even younger. Some of them were my age. I met three adult virgins in really? when I was in grad school. And I was twenty six. Like that's a lot, right? Like that's a three yeah. out of like twelve people, like in the program or whatever. And some of them were my age. Some of them were younger. But I was like twenty six. I, I knew nobody in my personal life who was an adult virgin. Yeah. Like I thought that was like, yeah. a, like a, that was just the Steve Carell comedy. You know, that was the yeah, yeah. the only time I I thought it was a joke. But apparently, yeah. and then I'm seeing that happen more and more. And I, whenever I, you know, it comes across my timeline, any of the dating discourse and stuff, I am just like, oh my god, <laughs> like you yeah. all are not going to make it. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's it's terrible for everybody. But I mean, I see the men side of it more, and I'm always just like, you poor boys. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, you need an adult man, and it's like maybe it'll have to be me or somebody where you just like no don't do that <laughs> get a haircut yeah. stop wearing that like stop it's crazy it's crazy to like, yeah. this is why they're all so like puritan as well because yeah. i had this like body count tweet that had something ridiculous like <laughs> half a million like interactions or something and everyone going crazy at me like it was it was insane but i guess a lot of those were just like teenagers pretending to be adults and just you know like they've just got all these views that stem from their own isolation right. and lack of interaction with the opposite sex. Because whatever it was that I said, I said something really like nuanced and normal and like not a big deal right. at all. If I would have said that same thing like ten years ago, nobody would have batted an eyelid. It was just something that was like, if you don't, if women don't get like at least some degree of experience going into a relationship, then it's going to come out in other ways, or like right. you know, they might not be as good at being like a wife or a mother if they haven't had like some form of, you know, um, experiences leading up to that. And then everyone went absolutely crazy. Dude, the body count discourse. I mean, that trends what every 
couple weeks like online there's like a new fucking round of body count discourse it's so insane especially from the male angle when you see these guys they're like oh six seven eight i'm like dude like you think that's a lot like (laughs) you think six seven eight nine ten is a lot like jesus christ like like get the fuck where were you in the 2000s (laughs) like jesus christ dude like you have like you're not in trip like it's just wow like yeah i I, these polls that are like how many people have you slept with um none one or more than five and the the other button see results and it's like if you've slept with more than five people then you're a demon who will never be redeemed but yeah like i've never had as many people come at me as as that tweet it was completely mental have you ever had that have you ever have you ever done that on twitter where like you say something like that you don't you don't well to be fair i knew this would be a big deal but like i was just in like a shit posting type of mood but like have you ever had that where you do something and then you get like a lot of people coming at you in like a really nasty way? Yes. Um, yes. I've been on the bottom of a pile <laughs> and then Twitter before. Yeah. It's a rite of passage if you're going to put yourself on Twitter, I feel like. But it is. Uh... <laughs> if you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board to get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast. Become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy board. Yes, mostly never for anything that big because it mostly in the literary world it's happened to me with like people just putting out like ridiculous things. And I always, I mean, it wasn't even like I was putting my foot, same thing with, it wasn't like you were putting your foot in your mouth or anything. When you're saying something crazy, like I was just, you know, saying something that was relatively normal. Like normal. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, funny or whatever, or dismissive in the kind of snarky internet way. And then, yeah, you just start getting dog piled, you know, like kind of, <sighs> it starts getting into the wrong feeds and it gets, I, I felt remember, like Hester Prynne on the platform being called there was, by half a million people. There was an editor one time from a, not a major magazine, but one of the bigger magazines in the literary world. And I was standing up for somebody who was getting dogpiled for bullshit reasons. Uh, and of course, I, I remember she tweeted out, that, oh, go ahead and block Andrew Wittstadt, you know, go ahead and block him because he's a, you know, te- Nazi or whatever it is, you know, fucking really? incredible but that's worse when it's like in the list. Yeah. But when I feel like that feels more personal if it's in like the literary, you know, it's in an area where you're working in or like you're trying to gain some success. That feels more hurtful and like personal than just some like groiper and on some Twitter. Sure. Uh, for sure and like, it was like, in defense yeah. of somebody that they were trying to blackball like you know like there it was it was me trying to be like hold up don't blackball people for bull you know like right yeah. that was basically my side of it and then they were like coming yeah. after me because i stood up for the person that was trying to get him blackballed and, and you know it didn't turn out well but yeah i know it yeah 
definitely been on the bottom of it. not the body count stuff though i imagine that gets especially for women like the dms and yeah. i can't imagine like yeah oh no one can dm me unless i follow them back anyway oh, that's, okay. that's yeah, fine yeah, yeah. <laughs> good yeah <laughs> that's what you have to do i mean but yeah so you had it where they they came after you for trying to like you were trying to stand up for someone and then they tried to turn it and say that you were like one of the bad people yeah and i always yeah. thought it's always an exaggeration I always say like what defines our time right now is like absolute hysteria and uh, mm. people always want to say the hysteria is on both sides because there's some truth to that because you can find articles where people that aren't on the left are being hysterical about whatever things, you know, you can find whatever you're looking for, especially in the internet age. Yeah. But then I'm just like, dude, it's so disproportionate. Like people are being his so hysterical from the left side of things. Like it's so hysterical. Like, like know. it's just not even close to equivalent in proportion. Like, I don't know what anybody's yeah. talking about. You guys are being hysterical about everything. Well, being hysterical yeah. is like being part of being a leftist, I guess. It's like part <laughs> of the DNA of being one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of leftism, there was, it was funny fucking, it was funny and it's small, this little thing. It's about when they're, they're about to do the, um, on up, 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 up on the, uh, the 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 blockade or whatever in the in the marketplace, and what's his face? Uh, Dimesdale's about to do his thing, or, or he's giving his speech. But there was this little thing, uh, page two twenty one in mind, where he says the picture of human life in the marketplace, though its general tint was the sad gray, brown, or black of the English emigrants, was yet enlivened by some diversity of hue. <laughs> A party of Indians in their savage finery of curiously oh, yeah. embroidered deerskin robes, like this kind of like DEI in the time of uh, Puritan New England. This, uh, yeah. <laughs> enlivened by some diversity of hue is how it's described. Oh, yeah. Because the Indians came. <laughs> I did really love all of the like talk of, I did love the, I, I wanted to know more about the Indian tribes with the pilgrim, with the um, Puritan settlers. Um, I wish that uh, it, it does. He, did you say does his other book talk about that? Like the Puritans, like the Indians with the Puritans. Did you say that is his other book like that, or did I remember that wrong? You know, it it was not this book specifically, but other books from a little earlier than this. Where I went through a couple of years ago, I read all of James Fenimore Cooper's kind of Leatherstocking Tales, which are very right. big in America. Here is like the classic kind of basically the first couple westerns that were done right. about the expansions west in the U.S. and the oh, kind will of... you send me some links to that or something? I'll yeah, 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 what yeah. That is. Uh, I'll about uh, that. yeah. The um, what's the most famous uh, uh last of the mohicans is the most famous uh right. book in that series uh but i that actually people give them a lot of shit now because of course looking back with rose-colored glasses we can pretend that this you know james fenimore cooper was an awful racist which you know sure he was probably racist but it's just you know when you read those books you know everybody talks about how awful they are but when you actually read them like this guy cared a lot you know he cared a lot about the natives he cared a lot about yeah. the tribes and the different societies within the tribes and he really tried i think when you read it you can tell that he respected and cared and wanted to show like the reality of it in a lot of ways yeah. and he was in and and you know it, it's not his fault that he was the one in a position to do that right exactly he was and that was what, like the 1820s and stuff where he started putting out those books. And that was like, 
pretty much he invented the kind of mythology of the American West, you know, where the kind of cowboys and Indians and the kind of, you know, uh, mining booms and all that and the, the settlers heading out and like the Oregon Trail, uh, mm. all like the kind of big historical moments, but just the way he does it with all the different tribes because you know the tribes are at each other's throats then they have the english settlers and then not just at that time it was beyond english it was german italian you know everybody coming over from europe uh to seek a little bit of you know quote-unquote freedom or peace or free for flea persecution and it was um yeah just the way he handled it just opened my eyes to a lot of how how much trade was happening, how much peaceful living side by side, even though there were a lot of wars there, you know, most of the time it was peaceful, even though, uh, you know, the history of it, of the, the colonists pushing the native Americans off their land, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, there was more respect than we tend to, we tend to gloss over that. Yeah, 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 exactly. There was more like, of course, because to write a book about this stuff, you have, you do have to care about the subject. And if you care and respect about your subject, you can tell when you're you're reading it. But yeah, when when they were describing in this book, when they described in the Scarlet Letter the old world which they come from, they described it as the old world. I was like, no, don't leave me there in the old world, because <laughs> right. I've got so used to like being in New England in the book that I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I've been left here in the old world. I'm back here in the ancient place that's been forgotten. Yeah, they, uh, it's funny that they still use that as a signifier in certain things, right? So mm. really, they only use New World and Old World, at least in my knowledge of it. They use that to differentiate wine varietals. So if it's an Old World oh. or New World, and also tobacco varietals and like cigars. Oh my God, and I didn't know about this. Yeah. Do they really? Yeah, that's like the only circumstance where they still say Old World and New World, meaning, you know, Whoa. Old World is Europe and Asia and all the continent over there. And the New World is basically the Americas, you know, South that's and North amazing. America. Yeah. That's so cool. But it's, it's weird because, yeah, I mean, you know, it gets a little, it, people sometimes get bristle when they hear those categories, but it is kind of like, that's how people thought about it. Whereas like, this was the world. It's romantic. And then, yeah. And it's then romantic. they found this lush landscape in the middle See, of the fucking I only water. Bristle at, <laughs> and as well, I only don't like it because I'm stuck in the old one. <laughs> but right, like, yeah. I do, I do think it is a good way to describe things though. Definitely. Yeah. Maybe we should bring it back. Well, like I said, it's still used when you're talking about tobacco or wine or probably Maybe even I whiskey. should change my podcast name to the old world. We from the old world. <laughs> the old world. Where did, where did you get the now then from, actually? Um, it's just because it's a northern phrase. It just means, like, okay then, or, like, let's go or something. Okay, yeah, yeah. But Jimmy Savile also used to say it, so many, many people have taken the piss out of me saying that it's his catchphrase, but the, to that I say, don't be racist towards regional dialects. <laughs> because that's just the thing that people say all over the north. It's not just him, so, right. yes. I can't believe I said that because I was trying to erase it from the lore of my podcast, but there I am bringing it back. <laughs> it made me think of when I first was, was heard the name of it. I was like, did you ever see that movie Now and Then from like the 90s? No. I guess it's American. Where like I, I had an older sister, so I saw like all like those movies that would come out. 
uh, that were meant for like teen girls, but you know, I was like eight or nine or whatever, watching them with my sister and stuff. So like now and then was a big one when that came out. It always makes what me was think it of like? It. A, it, what, it's it about like a this group. Film. Yeah, it's about this group of friends that are like girls, teenage girls, preteen girls, and you know, kind of a 1950s suburb America that have this kind of bond between them, and then they keep flashing back and forward between them being like you know 40 year old adults, women oh. uh, getting together again. And where they are and like you know the things they went through together that led them to this very kind of heartfelt touching movie i haven't seen it in a long time so i don't know how good how much it holds up but uh yeah i always liked it because i thought one of the girls was smoking i forget her name but you know, i was like <laughs> nine you know 10 or whatever yeah. and she was like 13 or whatever you know like in the movie like yeah so i wouldn't oh, think I that like that. i've never heard yeah. of that yeah sorry if i send you on a wild goose chase for like a mediocre <laughs> movie but yeah absolutely <laughs> Uh, my last question here uh, for the book-wise is, uh, what, what did you think of the ending? So, yeah, so they both get put... So, yeah, Hester's come back to the town, hasn't she? And she lives out the rest of her days. Um, and then she gets put in a grave that's actually beside the minister in the, in the graveyard, I guess. Um, but there's a little bit of space in between, isn't there? So they... I don't know. So they're they're not putting them in there together, but they're acknowledging that there was like a real relationship. Um, and then let me see. Then it said, I'm just gonna read it. Yeah, please. So, so said Hester Prynne and glanced her sad eyes downward at the scarlet letter. And after many many years, a new grave was delved near an old and sunken one in that burial ground beside which King's Chapel has since been built. It was near that old and sunken grave, yet with a space in between, as if the dust of the two sleepers had no right to mingle. Yet one tombstone served for both. All around there were monuments carved with ar armoral bearings, and on this simple slab of slate, as a curious investigator may still discern and perplex himself with the purport, there appeared the semblance of an engraved escutcheon. It bore a device, a herald's wording of which might serve for a motto and brief description of our now concluded legend. So sombre is it, and relieved only by one ever-glowing point of light, gloomier than the shadow, and this is what it says on the gravestone, on a field sable, the letter A, Giles. So I had to look up what that means. So the actual tombstone means, like, in a, in a field of black, the letter A is, like, burning bright red. That's what I've. That's what I've taken that to mean. Right. Do you think like that's what I can gather it means? Like, did you? What did you think? Did you? Did you look that up, or did you instinctively know what that meant? I didn't look it up, and I didn't instinctively know it either. <laughs> what right. I, what I just kind of keep going. If I, I uh, but yeah, I would say the ending to me, I would say almost biblical. Like, and and I think he was aspiring to that type of 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 on your deathbed, you know, relaying the truth kind of, um, uh, yeah. And it's very, and it's very mixed, isn't it? Cause on the one hand, they haven't acknowledged that they're in there together. They haven't even given them individual tombstones and the tombstones are talking about the letter a, but because they are still near each other. So their relationship has been acknowledged and the letter a kind of ended up becoming quite a positive thing for Hester in some ways it's not necessarily bad, is it? It's kind of like mixed. Right, yeah. It's like positive, it's somewhat positive. Yeah, and I think it, yeah, that's purposeful too. And I guess 
just how epic, especially like him dying as he has this moment of total clarity at the end, and then Hester coming in there and 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 being buried next to him eventually. Yeah, it just had a grand sense. I guess that's why I kept trying to say biblical is because it was like a grand sense of not necessarily closure, but there's some ambiguity to how it ends up too, right? Like, like yeah. it, it worked out, but then there's also the scar of it still, you know, like, yeah. The scar. Oh my God. You know, which bit I loved, I love the bit where, do you know where he put, he opens his top just before he dies and he shows like the scarlet letter I love how in the conclusion it talks about no one really knows what it was that they saw. Some people say there was nothing there. Some people say that he um, had a letter A sewn into his skin. Other people said that it just grew out of his skin from his like anguish. And I really loved that. And I love the idea of just like the brutality of opening your shirt. And there's a sort of letter A like stitched into your skin in like a really gross graphic type of way. I think that's my right. favorite imagery in the whole book. And the legend, right? Like the like the the story is one thing, and then the legends around it like or, or give even more meaning to the people living in that village. The kind of legends around the forest with like it's like added to that same legend of like what they would say in the no- the novel is like the black man and his book out there in the in the in the woods. Yeah. It's like another added thing to the lore of this specific area and this specific village and and and. and all the people have you know you take your own conclusions and there's like the people that are more practical about it and there's the people that embellish it the people that that say oh how did he get that letter on his chest did he brand it into himself did he sew it into his skin did he you know was that his quiet penance that he was giving himself uh i did i did love the suspense of that as well because the whole way through the book whenever he's like anxious or something goes wrong he like or he's upset he grasps his chest like he's gonna have a heart attack and it did have me wondering the whole way through. I was like, okay, so if he's just got a fabric letter, how is it staying under his top? And how did he get the fabric letter? How do the governor and the other people not know that he's got the fabric letter already? Like, I was wondering, like, the whole way through about that. Was you? Yeah, yeah. And there was, like, yeah, I guess it's supposed to show us that he knew the whole time and i mean like i guess it's supposed to show us his guilt in some way that he was carrying oh yeah because it's like saying that even if you're not like he's not wearing it outwardly as like a fabric symbol but it's growing out of his skin into this thing that's much much worse and more painful and like a physical ailment that's killing him like the truth shall set you free the yeah uh, yeah the uh you are a prisoner of your own mind if you're not being truthful and honest if you're Mm. not maybe or like you're prisoner of your own body if you're not being true and honest or if you're hiding guilt or if you're hiding something or even especially in this situation so extreme blaming somebody else who's more vulnerable than you more likely to be killed because of it even like you know just yeah like the ultimate sin where you're sacrificing somebody who's weaker than you to pay for your you know indiscretions and and guilt and yeah betrayal like i didn't even yeah betrayal in this novel like Mm. huge theme i know and not just betrayal on the individual level like human interaction i think betrayal of faith too right like like the the minister kind of betrays his position and faith in that because of cowardice or because of yeah i mean it's 
I mean, there's, it's been written about endlessly listeners. Like there's just, you know, there's so many angles. If you literally just Google the Scarlet Letter, like, you know, critical essays or whatever, you're going to get millions of hits on every angle you could imagine. But yeah, the themes. I are love endless. the bit where he goes on his little rampage as well. When he like, he's almost says something rude to some old lady. And then he, all, he wants to like swear with the sailor and then some like hot young virgin maidens who really <laughs> admire him come over and then he like gets all horny but like doesn't do anything he doesn't like he suddenly realizes he can manip- use his power to manipulate them and he doesn't and he comes out of it unscathed that that did bring me quite a lot of glee actually i found that quite fun that he was like thinking all these thoughts but like not doing anything about it i was wondering if he, what he was going to do yeah and the, i think i'm thinking about this now when you bring it up the the unseen aspect of it so he had his revelation unseen in the town it was in the forest with hester you know by themselves even the pearl wasn't even mm. with him she was off playing and then he gets back into the town and he's like stumped like he like can't even process like the kind of like the fear still gripping him and then also like his usual habits are not like his just are not acting the same way he's expecting them to where he can't even think of any verses to quote to this woman that wants him to quote a verse as the minister and he's like his mind goes blank he's like it's like a weird combination of joy and maybe aloofness and kind of yeah but also that guilt still play like you know panging in the back of him because he's like oh we could walk out of the woods right now you know holding each other's hands but we're gonna wait four days and i'm gonna give this speech and then you know yeah yeah he's like paying for his not accepting the 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 consequences of his actions and uh responsibility maybe even like and I didn't see any of it coming still. Like, yeah. I didn't see any of the twists and turns. I thought that they, I didn't think that he was going to be the problem. I thought it was just going to be the other guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I was, the, my, my, I guess my concluding thoughts when I got to the end of this novel was just, man, like, I see why this has stood the test of time, you know, at this point, almost 200 years that, it's because it is so rich with these contradictions, with these struggles of faith, with these struggles of purity, with these struggles of even just like being a good person. I think we tend to get overzealous with that too. Like everybody has flaws, of course, and we're not always a good person a hundred percent of the time, but there is like a natural, like I always say this, like I have a hard time, like lying is very hard for me, you know, like it's very, maybe it's just my Catholic upbringing or something like the girl. But yeah, I just, yeah, same. it eats yeah. me alive. Like if no, I'm same. knowingly lying to somebody, even if it's just something like a surprise party or whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's just, know. it's just very hard for me. And you've also me. got to keep up with the things that you said, <laughs> yeah. which is, yeah. Yeah. And it's so much work to lie. Like it's so much effort to keep up a lot. Like it's just, I, and I, I guess my instinct is to reject it where I, yeah, there is a value that we place on honesty and, uh. I don't know. You know, it is interesting. You know, I give my students this essay every semester when we're talking about definition and basically like the essay I give them to, you know, I assign them to be like, you have to pick a term and define it. And that can be a fun essay. If you do it a certain way, it can be a you know, pain in the ass if you're just not. Clicking oh, who with do you, you but, teach? Like what age? What age are these? Uh, people? I'm an adjunct at a community college, so I mostly teach uh, 101, English 101 in college. Uh, wow, that's cool. The community college here. And uh but I give him this essay and it's, it's called um, The Insufficiency of Honesty. And it talks about how honesty is held up as a virtue, but the, the guy's arguing that, um, you know, 
honesty without integrity. So when people are just like, well, I'm just being honest, you know, you're saying something rude, right? Or you're saying yeah, something yeah. mean and you're just yeah. being honest. They said they use that as an excuse to be like, oh, well, I'm being honest. So it's okay mm. because that's an ultimate virtue where he says it's more than that. You know, like you have to have integrity with that because honesty so without true. integrity is just, you know, selfish almost. Like, yeah, exactly. like, like the preacher or the minister in the scarlet letter. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, yeah, He's, that's perfect. And he gives a bunch of examples in the essay, and it usually gets the, you know, 18-year-olds. I mean, it's community college, so there's always, you know, wide range, but it's mostly like 18, 19-year-olds. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, they usually get stirred up by some of the kind of moral dilemmas he presents in the essay as arguments, you know, a lot of them about infidelity and things like that. And, uh, yeah. and the scenarios and, and confessing on your deathbed is one of the examples he uses in that essay where... You confess, the example he uses in the essay is infidelity between a married couple where the husband is dying, the wife is obviously, you know, not, and she's at his deathbed in the hospital, wherever it is, and he's feeling immensely guilty because he had an affair, you know, 35 years ago or whatever, and she never found out about it, he got away with it, I guess you could say, but he's feeling terrible guilt and he's dying, so he relieves himself by telling and confessing it to his wife on his deathbed, right? And yeah. the guy examines it from the angle, like, is that being, is that honesty with integrity, right? Because one, he's dying, so he's not going to have to face the consequences of yeah. his honesty. Yeah, and then she's got to deal and then with she's knowing gonna, right. that that whole thing was a lie. The yeah. rest of her life is now being burdened yeah. with him relieving himself from his lie, you know, like right. his his yeah. inner guilt. So there's like a selfish way to relieve yourself of the guilt. And it, it is kind totally. of an interesting way to turn that on its head, like, like... Mm even you know besides the immorality and of the also if you confess whatever, that but... to someone as you die and like if you confess to that if you confess to that as part of your marriage you could talk it through over like weeks or months or whatever it right. took to like feel better about it but you don't get the opportunity if someone dies straight after they've said it <laughs> yeah and the fact that why are you doing it are you doing it because you feel guilty or are you doing it to absolve yourself when you have no consequences the stakes are gone at this point and all you're yeah. doing is leaving your spouse with this burden of knowing that it was a lie, that you were lied to for oh, 30 yeah. years, like, and the devastation, Messed you know. Up. Yeah, so you're, like, putting it on somebody else. And I think that's, maybe that's what's being shown with, like, Hester never remarrying, Hester just coming back voluntarily wearing, you know, like, the, the, the scarlet letter and, and, the, and the, yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, it's an yeah. interesting way to think about that with integrity. And, and everybody gets obsessed with intention. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean it that way. And it's like, yeah, we know. But it's like, you know, are you doing that with integrity? Are you doing that with, you know, honesty in this regard? Like, or are you just trying to, you know, shitpost and be an asshole or, or contrarian or whatever yeah. it is? Like, are you coming from a place of integrity and honesty that are intertwined are you doing it for selfish reasons whereas a lot of people online i feel like do it for selfish reasons even the confessions totally right? yeah. yeah because it's like part of it's like acceptable within our culture one of the most refreshing things about reading this book is obviously i'm not saying that the puritan mindset is good <laughs> because clearly that's got its own problems but i just mean there's something really refreshing to us about going reading something where like having virtue is like an important thing like um at this time having being virtuous and good is more important than like showing off or like having stuff or having right. status and like i really love that and it, it let let me know if there's any other similar books to this or even older ones that are of that vibe because 
it kind of this is like corny to say but it, it kind of does make me want to be a good person like reading yes. this like it actually so i guess it is a fable and i guess it does work even if it wasn't meant to be because it, it definitely has the impact of making me think that like it's just because in our modern day-to-day -day lives unless you've got a family that instill this in you just just from what we see as like atomized individuals in this culture there's nothing that ever says that having virtue and being good is important it's right. just never a thing is it all the other things are seen as much more important, like having money or right. being young or like being good looking or right. like being exciting or interesting as a person. Quirky. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, did you did you ever watch Friday Night Lights? It might be very American because it's about like, you know, American football. But No, I've never heard of it. Uh, it was like a CW like show. So it's a little corny, a little kind of soap opera cheesy. But I watched it for the first time on Netflix. I think over the pandemic, I was putting on my wife. You know, I've always heard things about it. And the book was pretty big and the movie was pretty big. But they made a series about it. And I literally, like, every time I watched it, like, I was, like, in tears by, like, the end of every, like, every time I was, like, because it's mostly about this guy who's, like, a high school football coach in kind of a small town in Texas, which, if you know anything about American Texas, it's, it's football is a big deal in Texas, especially, right. like, so if they're playing like, um, like, like, so even a small town high school football team, like if you drive through parts of Texas and America here, like you'll just drive through a small town and their high school football stadium will be like a 25,000 seat, like professional looking stadium wow. with sex next to like this town that's dying, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, it just shows <laughs> yeah. where the priorities are. But like, so it's a big deal, but it's basically about a guy who's his football coach and he has to, he keeps getting put in situations where he has to do the right thing. Sometimes at great cost to himself and reputation. And it's just like, that was something that's like a relic that like eked out like in like the early 2010s, you know, like I think it started yeah. like 2006 or something and ran to like 2011 or whatever. That's but... so true because even in like Dawson's Creek, right. or like, yeah. Another um, one. there's like certain programs of that era where like, that really yeah goodness like kind of matters and then it drifts off into like in like for example in the world of yeah in the world of sex in the city yeah. it's not about being good it's all about doing what you want it's all about like the self as being the most important thing and doing what you want and not letting anyone get in the way of your individuality but like before that yeah goodness seemed to matter and the one episode that stands out to me is this guy, the coach, one of the assistant coaches gets accused publicly of being a racist, right? And everybody's leaning on the coach to fire the assistant coach because it's now it's mm. in the press and it's a big deal and it's, you know, it's causing all these issues. And uh, he was, you know, the, 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 the board is leaning on the coach, you know, the principal, everybody at the school is leaning on him to fucking you know fire the assistant coach but he keeps saying and you know he's put a lot of pressure on it. he's just like you know i know this man and i know he's not you know and i don't care what anybody else says and then at the end of the episode you know you find out he's struggling he's struggling they make you think he's gonna fire him just because there's so much pressure on him to do it even though he doesn't want to and then at the end of the episode you know he comes out to do the press conference and just you know stands up for himself his coach his players and says no like i'm not doing it and i'm just like Whenever I watch that or so, like, I always feel that feeling come through me where I'm like, yes, this guy is standing up for what he knows is right at great personal cost. And yeah. it just it just kind of like brings me this overwhelming sense of like, oh, my God, like, this is what it is to be a good person. Like, to yeah. to, to, to like it, this still matters. And it matters more than ever yeah. because people think it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, and it's tested. So when it, it's easy to be a good person when you're never tested on it, right? Like, of course. But it's easy yeah. to follow the you know the doctrines of a religion, whatever your faith is, you know, to when when nobody's testing you, when it isn't hard, you know, like when it isn't. Or, or when yeah. no one cares what you're doing. Like if you're right. a person of power, it's much more difficult because you have a lot more temptations. If you're somebody who's right up there, like the people who we judge for like being bad in whatever ways, like it must be so much harder in that situation to choose the right path. And just like there, were, like. You know, part of that show, I guess, the, I hate to keep bringing it up, I know you haven't seen it, but it's like, uh, it's, <laughs> the part of it is he's molding young men, too, because he's a fo- you know, high school American football coach, and uh, he is, like, and I guess maybe it's because I went to an all-boys, you know, private school, Catholic school, and, and, it, and it, it's, there is something about having that adult man in the room that is holding you accountable for for no that's not what you do like that you're not a good person doing yeah. that and i remember yeah, i had this yeah. football coach and he this is before i went to the school but he was still a coach there and he was very beloved teacher shout out to augie maselli i know most people listening to this don't know who he is he was a fantastic man and it, he's he's long gone now but he was a fantastic teacher taught at my high school for like 50 years and coached football and all that and he would uh, he was very old school so when we were in school and stuff if you were mouthing off to him he'd grab your tie and like yank you to his tears to his face and he was an old man doing you know doing this like in his 70s but he always told this story in the 80s when he was the head football coach for a while and they won a bunch of championships and he said one year we always every year we have what we call the turkey bowl on thanksgiving which is like our high school would play our rival high school in like a big game and it was usually like a fun and and it's been going on for like a hundred years blah blah but like he said one year he had like five star players that went to like a party the day before Thanksgiving, which is a big thing out here in America the day before Thanksgiving because everybody's off is like a party day, like the Wednesday before. And they got mm. drunk and got caught, right? They got caught getting drunk underage as, you know, teenage, as teenagers do, right? And uh, he said that they weren't, he wouldn't let them play in the, the final game, which was a big game against the rival high school, you know? And uh, he said, he's all right, well, you guys can't play as your punishment. You know, you're not playing in this big game that matters and it might affect your scholarships going to college, blah, 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 you know, all that. And then he said, after he made that announcement to the team, he said probably 20 guys on the team came up to him in his office and was like, coach, coach, you know, we're going to lose if you don't let them play. If you don't let them play, coach, you know, we're going to lose. And he said, he looked at him and was just like, you really think they should play? You think we're going to lose if they don't play? And all the players like, yes, coach, we do. And he just said, okay, well, then you can sit out too you don't have to play either. Like, you know, and he just like stood by that and just said, you know, I'd rather lose with a bunch of guys that did the right thing than win with a bunch of guys that did knowingly the wrong thing, you know? Yeah. yeah, Go coach. That's That really (laughs) seems like a sort of like morale to American film right there. (laughs) Right. And it is like, I, I get that kind of almost chills, like kind of when I even think about the story, because it was so moving to me, even as a kid, like a teenager at the time, when he's telling us this, like this guy who's been through some things, like he's, mm. yeah. And it just, I, I, you know, talk about dating discourse. Yeah. I think a lot of young men need that. They need like an old yeah, like, bring football back, coach. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. We, we all need an old football coach. I think yeah. we all do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was talking to Nina Power about that, about like the lack of father, the lack of having a father in, in society. But that's another that's another topic altogether. I know, I know, and I've um, kept you so long. You were fantastic. No, it's been great. I'm really, I'm really glad to have talked about this book. I really love it, and I'm gonna after this, um, when I go to bed, I'm probably gonna read the last 
there's like a bit by D.H. Lawrence at the end of the book. Has yours got that on it? No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. But uh, I like that. Yeah, I'm that go makes that. sense that the penguin has that. Yeah, with an essay. By yeah, it. I'm going to read it. But yeah, thanks for having me on. Of course, please. Brilliant. I'm going to have to have you back because this was fantastic. Uh, shout out to, uh, uh, or any final thoughts? Where we said everything? No, no, I think we've said everything. Yeah. I've said uh, everything, unless you have any final thoughts. No, no, no. Uh, sorry to keep you with all those um, stories of my, no, <laughs> my fucking thing. It's where great. can people find your stuff? <laughs> where, where can people find Now Then and your Twitter handle and all that? Drop your links and... Um, so my Twitter handle, what is it? I think it's Melly by C and my podcast is on Patreon, just like patreon.com forward slash now then. Um, it's on Spotify, Apple. Yeah, that's it. So it's now then like all together as one word. Nice. Leave it a review listeners. Go out there and listen to it. Leave it a review, (laughs) subscribe, all that. Uh, Melly, this has been fantastic. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Heavy Board. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Board. I may say male is entirely hostile. No! Dinner. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.